Monday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. It's six after. (sighs) A new day, Monday. Following the Academy Awards, our own James Birdsall still wiping the Academy Awards out of his eyes this early morning. Yeah, they they take it out of you. Did you uh, partake? Partake of the Academy Awards? Yes. Actually, this year I didn't come away with one, so I didn't partake of the... <laughs> you weren't nominated? No, that that was a surprise to me. Really? Yeah. Well, wouldn't you need to actually be in the movie industry? Well, you'd think so, but, you know... You could be a seat filler. Yeah. <laughs> they talked I mean, to, talk to many seat fillers. Oh, man, night. that'd be a great gig. <laughs> yeah, Dress I didn't up. get an Academy Award for, for watching their movies. Yeah, they, so why would you... Yeah. They need to mass market the Lego Academy Award yeah. they were handing out the Lego Oscar. That that was pretty interesting. You know, that's interesting, except that's just pretty sad. What, a Lego version? If you're, if you're holding the Lego version, well, yeah, that's somebody win, with but, the real version. Right. But still, it's Lego. It might be it might be better. Hey, sometimes second isn't bad. It might be worth more. My kids would take that Oscar apart, build a car. Look, an airplane. <laughs> Look, Dad. Well, that was interesting. I did you watch it, Terry? I did. I didn't. Not intently, but it was on the screen in front of me. Yeah. And occasionally I was like, whoa, 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 what's that? And then you watch it and you go, oh, right. Okay. My uh, my mom got a sleep number bed. So if anyone's wondering, I'm a 45. Okay. I spent all night trying to figure it out. <laughs> Just up and down, up and down. Like, no. I could do that or watch the Oscars. It's it's almost equal. It almost is. When I came out, I mean, it's just, come on. Except the sleep number, you have the long-lasting effect. Yeah. And the Oscar, you might get to the end and wonder, why did I just waste all those three hours watching that? Yeah. See, there was a few moments that I did see. Adina Menzel making fun of uh, John Travolta. That was cool. Right. And then he awkwardly grabs her face. That was weird. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. There's some weird people in Hollywood. I don't know if you've noticed that. A little bit. I mean, I don't want to be rude. But some of those people are weird. A lot. A lot of those people are weird. And then what's the deal? I mean, it's interesting. Sean knew we were going to have uh, a real big, you know, opening number with Neil Patrick Harris. We knew that. Right. He nailed it. That was cool. That was, yeah. Lady Gaga, for heaven's sakes. Who knew? See, she, and that was. um, She cleans up nice. Well, when she (laughs) takes off the bacon suit, right? (laughs) Or cold cuts or whatever that was. She looks different without a cold cut bacon suit on. But she did that Sound of Music tribute just straight. She just sang the songs. It, yeah. it kind of sounded like it was the movie. It was beautiful. That it was, was. Neat. That was cool. You can see the, the range and she didn't have to auto-tune and there wasn't yeah. a driving bass beat behind it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? Lady yeah. Gaga, what's going on? Yeah, that was neat. That, uh, what was another one? What was another weird moment? Um just at the very end. The fact that I was watching an award show? Yeah, but you really weren't. You were no, listening to I was listening to, your... to some podcasts, and my wife was fast-forwarding through the recording. And Were you listening to our our podcast? No, I live our podcast. Oh, good point. Yeah, so. Yeah. And then I recap it after the show. 
Yeah. So by the time I go home, I think I've got a pretty good idea what happened. Yeah. So I listen to other things. Well, I think that's a great way to use your time. Right. That My wife don't. doesn't, but yeah. yeah. We're shopping and she goes, hey, you need to pick that up. And I just ignore her because I'm listening to a podcast. Mm-hmm. And she gets kind of, you know, mad. <laughs> See, but I'm not into the dress stuff. I'm not no. into that. Come on. The red carpet pre-show? I thought that was weird that Neil Patrick Harris lost his clothes. Well, he was locked out of his his, his uh, dressing room and the show must go on. So he oh, just ran on the yeah. stage. You he know? got a lot of bad press on that one because yeah. his timing was off. Yes. You can't have somebody accepting an award right before that, talking about the loss of her son to a suicide, and then... Yeah. You just, I don't know. It's timing. You know, but that's half of comedy. It's timing. <laughs> you got to lose your clothes at the right time. That's right. Anyway, Every, that's Everything at my house stopped when everything was awesome, when that song was performed my kid was actually watching the lego movie really he stopped it and sat there and just stared at him and he's like whoa and then he didn't say a word till <laughs> batman came on he goes that's batman so your son liked a few parts of it he liked that one part they knew it back to his movie he didn't care yeah he's like what are these people doing see interestingly i'm a 45 there you go sleep number i sleep number i didn't even know that but she got one and 45 i tried 100 i tried 80 70 60 apparently 45 is it 45 is my number. Is that as low as it goes? No, it goes to zero. Oh, yeah? Zero, you're actually just sleeping on the floor. <laughs> Sometimes I like to sleep on the floor. It just kind of straightens the back out. Totally. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. a, one, a 100 mm-hmm. straightens your back out. My wife, my wife gets concerned. She thinks I rolled out of bed in the night. Really? I may have hit my head, so she's concerned I'm hurt. I'm like, no, I'm just laying on the floor. It's no, fine. I'm just on the floor. <laughs> sleep number zero. It's like, it's all right. I vacuumed <laughs> yesterday. It's good. That's sad. Hey, lots of news, though. Yes. We've got, by the way, a killer guest coming up. FBI spokesperson Todd Palmer is going to be joining us. Agent Palmer. Or public affairs public officer affairs or something like that. Guru for Salt Lake City office. Yeah. And SWAT medic, which is a big deal. When you're on the SWAT, the FBI SWAT team, it's a big deal. I got a lot of questions. Like, you know, is he packing heat? He may dodge questions. I'm not going like to ask that, that one. Yeah, I won't even ask it. <laughs> I'm just going to check. Um, he's cool. Okay, so what other headlines we got? Big news. A video claiming to be made by the Al-Qaeda-affiliated Somali militant group, Al-Shabaab, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, called for an attack against the Mall of America along with sh- uh, shopping centers in Canada and the UK. Why? Why do they care about our shopping centers? Why not? You want to strike fear into America? Just take <laughs> it. No, I mean, think about it. That's a place where everyone just yeah. goes and gets in their car, drives over there to go shopping. You think and- you're safe? Mall of America, the biggest mall east of the Mississippi, I guess. It used to be the biggest in America. I'm not sure if that's yeah. still the still the uh, the case, but uh, they increased security over the weekend, but mm-hmm. of course nothing happened. But they have the largest Somali population in the United States. That's in probably Minnesota. what's going on. And Minnesota had 10 or 12 Somalis that actually left the country to go over and fight reportedly in serious they, they believe, yeah. yeah. So maybe so, that's it. So there, you know, there's some ties there between Somalia and Minnesota. We'll so. ask Agent Palmer about that. Not that specific issue, but you know, all these people leaving and then coming back to America—that's scary. Now we're being threatened. Our malls are at least. Congress returns to work today, so there's that story. Oh, were they not working before? They, they took last week. They took to, it off. I'm not sure what they were doing, but they were off. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security is funding runs out at week's end. Oh boy. And there's no clear solution in sight. This could hamper efforts 
to counter uh, the extremist appeal of the Islamic State. Uh, Respond scary. to emergency aid communities struggling with winter storms right now. They kind of coordinate some of that. This is all Homeland Security. Homeland Security uh, Secretary Jay Johnson said, uh, was talking about this Sunday, after all the Sunday talk shows, he said that up to 30,000 DHS workers would have to be furloughed if their budgets were cut, including huh. 80% of FEMA workers, which are really? who kind of respond right. to disasters. To emergencies. Yeah. Well, this has got to be settled. Luckily, Congress is back on the job. That's right. Now, it's already passed the House. Yeah. The so Senate. Waiting still, for the Senate. The Senate, we've always had a little problem. They're hung up on Obama's immigration plans. Uh, so they're kind and, of using this as a leverage yeah. tool. Yes. But they mm. have till Friday night to uh, secure the budget. Should we, uh, should we make a wager when they will actually settle this? I'm saying Thursday, Thursday night. Right. Late. Okay, Thursday. I'm writing that down. Unless certain senators get in the way, and then it might be late Friday. Just holding people into the weekend just to make people well, angry. Well, these people have to get back home. Right. So they don't want to carry it too long. I mean, a lot of us work on Fridays, but they probably just work through Thursday. They've done it before, and then they run out to the microphones and go, we work the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we worked a five-day work week. We're working for you. <laughs> good, good. Any other news? Um, I wrote this headline. I thought it was cool. funny. Oh. It says, Fox News anchor under fire, or was he? <laughs> See? See how that works? This is, this, is a, this is like payback for Brian Williams. Yes. Bill O'Reilly doing his best to deflect allegations that he misreported details of a 1982 riot in Argentina. He mm. was in Buenos Aires during the Falklands War. Yes. He has called it a war zone and a combat situation. But former CBS staffers who worked with O'Reilly at that time recall the events a little differently. They don't call it a war zone. They said it was the most cake assignment they've ever done. I think we were actually in in Uruguay, not Buenos Aires. Well, the Falklands are a thousand miles from down at the bottom of the world. Buenos Aires. So there really wasn't the the, the military that was in charge there wouldn't let the media actually anywhere near where the fighting was happening. So then they never made it to the island. Nobody did. They just stayed in Buenos Aires. But there was protests and things going on in Buenos Aires to cover. Yeah. And uh, he has, I guess, in a book and on the air a couple of times talked about it being a lot more involved yeah. than people remember. Did he come down on Brian Williams pretty hard? I think he might have. It seems to me he, was, he wasn't as uh, excited to do so, it seemed like, as other hmm. anchors were. In the sense of, you know, sometimes we exaggerate things. We're yeah. a country of forgiveness. It kind of, I think he may have said, gone that direction yeah. where others have talked about, you know, people need to lose their jobs. And, well, maybe it's, it sounds like it's hunting season for major anchors. Maybe. <laughs> Who will be next? Because why not? You, you take down somebody, you, you get a headline. You know what? I hope nobody comes after me. Really? Is there anything sketchy that you've over-exaggerated about your war reporting? I've never been in a war. What about disasters? Or a disaster. No floods, no hurricanes? No floods, no hurricanes. I did over-exaggerate how many points I scored in high school in a game. That could come back to haunt you. I actually said I scored two. <laughs> over-exaggeration. Wow, well, that's, that's, that'll be fun to watch. Plus, we'll, we'll talk about it, too. Uh, Mayor Giuliani, really, he stepped in it. And you know what? You can't. You can't question somebody's patriotism or love of country if they're the president. Honestly, I mean, you can. You have the right. 
but it backfired major. And so he he's actually backing out of that. He he actually said the phrase his uh, his um, bluntness overshadowed my message. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. That's why we need a kinder, gentler language. Which is, again, which is the problem, apparently, with President Obama. He's using a kinder, gentler language. So Giuliani came out and beat him up with a harsher language. Anyway, we'll get to that sometime during the show. But we're going to take a break. When we come back, wonderful guest, Agent Todd Palmer from the FBI here in the Salt Lake City office. He's going to be answering questions. Just kind of walking us through what we need to really worry about, what we don't. Are terrorists really coming to blow up our malls? Is that something we should be paying attention to? We'll get into that with Agent Todd Palmer up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend here, your uh, guide on the side as we're walking through not just the headlines, but some of the, the more local threats that are going on. We, um, you know, over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot. What we try to do is take the headlines and give you a little bit of a deeper cut, go into each, uh, you know, of the major headlines and see if we can't bring in experts that can walk us through you know, maybe not in detail about every scenario, but give us some some greater depth in understanding what's going on. So we decided who better to do that than Todd Palmer, who is an FBI agent. He spent over 20 years in law enforcement, and um, he has, as an agent, he has worked in the Las Vegas, Nevada field office, the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and the Salt Lake City field office, as well as completing several assignments in the Middle East for the FBI as well. He um, also is a kind of a, a, a spokesperson or a, a public information kind of person for the FBI and uh, has spent much of his career investigating criminal enterprises such as street and prison gangs, large-scale drug, drug traffickers, and he is currently a medic on the SWAT team, which I think is pretty cool. I used to be an EMT myself uh, and um, also was assigned to public corruption squad which primarily investigates civil rights and human trafficking matters. Todd Palmer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So great to have you. I mean, it's you're really in an interesting job. It's funny because everybody you know, watches the TV and watches all these great cop shows, so they all know what the FBI can do. But you were just informing me on something really interesting because we hear of Homeland Security, whose funding is now in trouble a little bit this week. We hear of the IRS and they'll be, you know, they do certain investigations, the DEA, Drug Enforcement, ATF. We hear of the FBI, local police. So, but but the FBI is different in, in kind, but each, each of these agencies are investigative. Help us understand what's the difference. They're, the FBI is the largest federal law enforcement agency in the United States, and we have concurrent jurisdiction with almost every other federal law enforcement agency. In most states, we also have uh, a very limited but also uh, jurisdiction with the local law enforcement. Some states allow us to function as local police officers in those jurisdictions. Uh, we typically work with local law enforcement agencies kind of as a backstop. So if they request some assistance that we might be able to provide them, they're experts in certain areas that we might not be, and we hmm. might be experts in areas that they may not be. Yeah. I noticed I saw when Osama bin Laden was captured and that whole raid went down, an FBI agent was apparently there 
to keep chain of command of the evidence. Is that was that accurate? The FBI has had a concurrent mission with the United States military and the Department of Defense when it comes to investigating large-scale matters that might affect terrorism throughout the world in the United yeah. States. There are some FBI agents that will be assigned to do what they call uh, sensitive site exploitation. They pull evidence out. Uh, our military personnel are experts at what they do, mm -hmm. and we're very, very good at gathering evidence and taking that evidence to find uh, those little factoids that might be necessary to protect that's the United great. States. So as that's a, whole. a forte of the FBI is is information, correct, and and assessment. So um, talk to me about this as as we kind of to have an FBI agent here. I'm sure everybody's out there. They're hearing all of these uh, supposed kind of more homegrown attacks. Um, what happened up in Canada? Uh, and you know you can't talk specific on any of the specifics of any of these, but just other threats like what happened in France, where these homegrown kind of terrorists go away, work in the Middle East, learn to battle, go to war in the Middle East, but then maybe come home and threaten the homeland. We hear that on the radio, on television. Everyone's talking about that. Is that a threat? I mean, are we are we to worry about that? Those are things that we definitely need to be concerned about. The FBI has a national security program. More, most of what the national security program does is look at those types of threats, the threats that are in the United States, that are outside the United States that might impact the U.S. Yeah. We also have domestic terrorist investigators, and they look at those homegrown threats, people here born in the United States that are living here in the United States that may cause harm to our infrastructure, to our businesses, and to our citizens. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea, I guess, when when um, al-Shabaab is calling an, an, for major attacks on malls of America, on the Mall of America, and other shopping centers. I mean, somebody's got to cover that. So you have specific agents that follow that kind of an, a, a lead. Correct. And is it, it is, so it's real. We need to worry about it. Do we as the average citizen need to worry about it, knowing that you're worrying about it? I think it's important for everybody to be aware. We all walk around, uh, myself included, and other people, and, and say, this can't happen here. Yeah. Um, when I look for a place to live as an FBI agent, I'd like to live somewhere where it's great to raise a family and very comfortable in a quiet environment. But at the same time, I think that we need to recognize that um, it can happen here. It can happen anywhere. There is no, there is no laid out plan of this is the perfect opportunity, the perfect place for this to happen. So we as citizens also have to kind of broaden our mindset go about our daily business and do the things that we need to do, understanding that there are very, very good people protecting us and doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. But at the same time, we need to be diligent in our day-to-day -day activities and make sure that we report those things that are concerning to us. And, and I guess, what are we supposed to look for just as the average citizen? I mean, I guess you don't want to have a false report, but I'm, and I'm sure the FBI is following up on a million reports that maybe don't matter, but it's maybe the one that does matter. What should we look for that would be suspicious that would help? I think the the biggest recommendation that I could make to people is if the, if it causes you concern, then make a phone call. Hmm. It's better to make a phone call and have it looked at and be nothing than not make a phone call at all. We get most of our information, contrary to popular belief, from individuals that call us. So when individuals call 911 and they report something to a dispatcher who then reports it to a police officer, those things get followed up on. They get investigated, and the large majority of crime gets stopped that way. It's not stopped by... Um, great investigators doing wonderful, fabulous right. things. It's stopped by concerned citizens who see something that just doesn't sit right in the communities in which they live. Huh. Is it is is terrorism our and I guess domestic kind of terror? It seems like cyber attacks we're more vulnerable to. I think cyber attacks are one of the mis most misunderstood aspects of the criminal realm right now. Well, talk about that. What do you mean? 
the the amount of damage that can be done through a very simple cyber attack is huge. Uh, the large majority of us are on some kind of technical device every single day, yeah. really not understanding the power of that device that's in our hand, uh, the information that we put into those things. Uh, you would no sooner walk around flashing ten, fifteen thousand dollars out in open public, but you'll sit on a laptop computer, an iPad, telephone, and <laughs> type in all funds. of your banking right. information and do all sorts of things in open public, whether it's on mass transportation or sitting at the mall or in the movie theater. People are on these devices all of the time, putting their entire life yeah. out for someone who has the skill and technical ability to take. That's true. And you think about just the average Joe who has no – they can't even make a strong password <laughs> – Correct. And then the average, you know, f- criminal that's just super skilled at this stealing your password. And and people are at this all the time. When technology advances, criminal behavior advances when it comes in the technology or cyber realm. Yeah, interesting. The people that are perpetrating these crimes are every bit as bright as the individuals that are creating the software to protect the infrastructures. And it, and the power grids and all of these other infrastructures are fairly vulnerable. I, I can't assess vulnerability. Yeah. I can just say that we've got individuals that are that are constantly trying to attack those facilities, and we've got individuals that are constantly trying to protect those facilities. And it's almost like a chess game for mm. a lot of these people. I, I don't know if you heard the, a news story. I'm sure you did uh, about a billion dollar bank robbers get a billion dollars out of banks. They just slowly take five dollars here, twenty dollars here, elevate bank accounts, take funds out. But just simple cyber thieves, the, basically. We get a lot of complaint calls into our office in relation to to uh, that type of crime where through the Internet, whether it's uh, an email or some kind of um, a spoofing thing on, on your, your passwords, bank accounts, and they're, they're taking $5 here, $10 there. We have people call us all the time, hey, somebody took $100 out of my bank account. Well, the large majority of people don't look at their bank accounts every day. And if they're missing $2, $3, $4, but if somebody does that on a very large scale to five, six, seven hundred people a day, Ugh. that dollar amount accumulates huge. And if you see that $2 are missing from your bank account, mm-hmm. really, you're probably not going to spend a whole lot of time going back to your bank to try to ascertain where that money went. Yeah. So these types of crimes do happen. And it's very important that we take a hard look at at our online banking yeah. um, and all of our computer-related issues and make sure that we're on top of those things because if there is something that causes you concern, you can get that rectified by calling the companies. But you should be aware of what's going on because that will help you understand if somebody might have accessed the systems that you're trying to control. It is. It's such a simple – just watch the small numbers, just the little things add up to be very big things. Let's take a break. We're talking with Todd Palmer, who is an agent with the FBI here in the Salt Lake City office and is the information officer for them in this area. We will come back. When we come back, I want to ask uh, Todd about the mafia. Now, it used to be they were the big threat, but it sounds like, in a way, maybe they're not in the game anymore. Maybe they've been outplayed by all of the cyber thieves and the, the domestic terrorists and everybody else. We'll pick his brain on that. When we come back, Agent Todd Palmer from the FBI right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Awesome uh, topic right now. We have uh, FBI agent Todd Palmer is here. He's the information officer for the Salt Lake City um, field office. Has been in, uh, you know, 
investigations, police work for 20 plus years as an in law enforcement officer has served in Las Vegas, Nevada. When you think about that, just the potential historic mafia ties to the Vegas kind of crime scene and world. He he started out there with the FBI, went to D.C. as well. Also served in the Middle East, had some assignments in the Middle East as well. So the cool thing about the FBI, um, they're they're pretty much into everything. It seems like at least some part of their of their system is into that. Now, I wanted to ask I wanted to ask Todd Palmer about uh, first of all, welcome back, Todd. Thank you. About the mafia. We always, you know, back in the day when I was growing up, that was the story. Always chasing Capone kind of guys, always chasing the mafia. Uh, Are they still around? Certainly they're still around, mostly in the major metropolitan areas, but they still exist and there are still prosecutions against them going on today. Yeah. But I guess part of this, what you're telling me and we were talking off air a little bit is it's almost it's regional, isn't it? Every region kind of has their own specific niche kind of crime. The FBI will take its time and and look at, they call it, um, not to get technical, I guess, but the the area of responsibility. Uh So each field office will look at their area of responsibility and try to pick out the crime threats that are are most prevalent in that particular area. And then they rank them and try to put their resources towards the crime problems, again, that are most prevalent in the area that they're responsible Mm -hmm. for. So one crime in, in Salt Lake City, for example, uh, may be completely different than a crime in New York City. It's, it's, yeah. Because I guess, I mean, like, yeah, if you don't have huge union kind of event or groups, if you don't have, um, like in Utah, we're not a unionized state. There's not a view, lot of union kind of work going on here. But there are a lot of, I guess, more affinity crimes, just crimes where people, you know, who are close in a church might commit crime against other people who are in the church, embezzle, steal money, whatever. Correct. So that's an affinity crime. Um, what are some other kind of regional types of crimes? Um, drugs, of course, is a national problem, but you'll see certain types of drugs in certain communities that you wouldn't see in other ones. Yeah. Um, that's kind of uh, becoming a, a gray area, which we used to see as inner city drugs have moved themselves to areas uh, where you typically wouldn't have uh, expected it to be. Um, heroin, for example, is a very high uh, or very prevalent drug in the Salt Lake area. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. And then, uh, I mean, all the meth labs. So you work with the DEA and share intelligence. And then sometimes, I guess you have to help each other based on what you're learning. Correct. What about, um, I guess, is the threat, I'm assuming, from the Mexican kind of cartels? Are we still seeing a lot of it, a lot of push from Mexico and drugs up into the United States? Absolutely. Still, because I have a son in northern Mexico. Um, just wondering about that. But you saw the Coca Cola thing. Coca Cola may pull all of its bottlers or whatever out of the northern Mexican, you know, provinces because they've been, I guess, kidnapping Coca Cola. I, I, I did. I did see mention of that. There are uh, in foreign countries, and this is one another violation that the FBI does investigate: is any crime against a U.S. citizen mm. in a foreign country. The FBI has legal attaches in almost every country um, outside the United States. And we do liaison work with local law enforcement agencies there. So if a U.S. citizen might be kidnapped or murdered in a foreign country, the FBI will have bodies there to assist them in those investigations and also be able to provide information back here to the U.S. so we can provide that to the families of the victims. Do you, do you feel like since 9-11, we've, it just seems like we have to have so much information coming in. Do you feel like it's all being integrated pretty well? Are we, are we all talking better than ever? 
I would say yes. Uh, we're doing a much better job than we did prior to 9-11. We did a very, very good job then. Yeah. Uh, but now we're working together. We have more task forces, and I think that we understand the crime problem a little bit better. Uh, we have experts in various areas that we might not have had experts in prior to 9-11. Hmm. I mean, it's uh, another one that we've heard a lot of in the news are public corruption cases, like the Virginia governor and his wife. Now they're going to prison. You Are you seeing more public corruption type of crimes? I think we're uh, – uh, We've always been very aggressive in trying to look into public corruption matters. I think we're doing a better job of it now. We mm-hmm. have a better um, understanding of how it affects society in general. Um, I think the overall consensus in the public is that we as public officials should be held accountable for our actions uh, to include law enforcement as well as uh, elected public officials. So that's one of our missions and we're going to spend a lot of time and energy making sure that – People that make mistakes, commit crimes, are held accountable for those types of behaviors. I mean, it's it really is. You you are into everything, really. I guess every crime that crosses a line, a state line, is a potential FBI case. It could be. We try to look for an interstate nexus in a lot of the crime, criminal statutes that are out there. We investigate all matters of federal law. So, uh, if it's enumerated in the federal code book, we probably have an individual that investigates that particular violation. Mm. Is is um, I know civil rights has been a really big issue when we talk about Ferguson and all that went down in Ferguson. Um, we'll talk about the civil rights kind of cases that you're that are out there and what what's your responsibility there? The FBI is a, a kind of a unique monster in that area. We're the only federal law enforcement agency that actually is by code uh, regulated to investigate law enforcement officers, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the current community fervor is, is law enforcement related when right. it comes to civil rights matters. So the FBI has a couple of statutes that we utilize when investigating, investigating law enforcement brutality type situations. We also investigate hate crimes. Most states don't have um, hate crimes laws. They have hate crimes enhancements. So somebody commits an assault against an individual because of what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, there could be an enhancement associated with that assault. So they have a normal assault charge and then an enhancement Correct. because of a hate crime. Correct. But in the federal government, we actually have hate crimes laws that we do investigate. And they're very, very specific. One of them is called the Matthew Shepard Act. It's a very interesting, very well-written uh, law. Uh, it's very broad in nature. Um, but what people, I think, misunderstand about what it is that the FBI does when we investigate, whether it's law enforcement officers, public officials, or hate crimes, most of the statutes that we utilize are what we call specific intent statutes, meaning that the burden of proof is very, very high. We have to be able to prove that the individual that committed the act did so with intent, mm-hmm. with intent to, divide, to deprive someone of a enumerated civil liberty. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. That seems like a really high burden. It is. Of proof. It is very high. It's very difficult. Um, Most of what we do, let's say, go back to the law enforcement arena. Um, When we investigate a a law enforcement matter, we're utilizing a multitude of case law that's already been set by the Supreme Court. One of the cases that we utilize when we assess reasonableness, for example, is a case called Graham versus Connor. It came out, I believe, somewhere about 1989. And the Supreme Court essentially said, here's the reasonableness standard that we're going to utilize when we assess law enforcement use of force. Hmm. Um, and we use that. We look at that. Is it reasonable? Uh, it isn't what Todd Palmer thinks. It yeah. isn't what uh, individual yeah. on the street thinks. It's what has the Supreme Court set as a standard. And the large majority of citizens out there don't understand that these types of, of cases have already been adjudicated and case law has been set by the United States Supreme Court. The activities and actions of, of law enforcement agencies are based on those rulings. 
Do we have more? Do we have more civil rights cases now than ever? Um, and what would lead to that? I don't know if we have more civil rights cases now than ever. I think because of the way the media portrays most cases now, there's a lot of dialogue and discussion about yeah. these types of things. So I think that's good. I think the awareness of these types of events are is out there and it's in the forefront. But there are also um, there needs to be a very good balance between what what is actually going on, what is it that law enforcement is doing, and what the standards are. Does, does it end up being um, is it political at all? I mean, I, I assume. You know, if you have a certain head of a, of a justice department, do they push different agendas? And does that just different agenda end up impacting the FBI differently? The neat thing about the FBI is the FBI pretty much operates autonomously from every other entity out That's there. Nice. Um, our directors uh, are appointed, but they are essentially there for 10 years. Oh, really? Uh, Director Mueller uh, yeah. was able to extend by two years. Um, he's the first FBI director that was ever, ever able to do that. But after Mr. Hoover... Um, left the FBI. Um, all of the other directors have had a 10-year term limit. And it's supposed to be nice. autonomous from yeah. all other agencies. So we're able to operate and do the things that we need to do without a lot of outside political pressure. Yeah. In a way, we, we'd thank you because it's something that's constant. That's You know what I mean? Finally, we have something that's more constant, especially, I guess, when it comes to the need to investigate you know, to know that it's not always politically driven is important. What do we need to know? Just as the average citizen, as we kind of wrap this up, are there things we should be doing better? Are there things that we could be doing to make sure we are safer in all these areas we've been talking about? I, yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I think that, that we need to do better as a society is we need to educate ourselves on what our rights are. Uh, we live in a community of laws and rules. And a lot of times uh, we as citizens, we get upset at things we don't necessarily understand. Yeah. We in law enforcement and also in the government need to do a better job at educating individuals of, number one, what their rights are, but the associated responsibility attached to each right. It seems like over my 20-year career in law enforcement that people have have continually tried to absolve themselves of a responsibility for their behaviors and actions. Right. And we live in an incredible country with a multitude of freedoms, but each one of those freedoms has an associated responsibility attached to it. And a lot of times individuals will, will talk about what their rights and freedoms are without discussing or enumerating what their specific responsibilities yeah, right. are. And so we in government should do a much better job at educating individuals what their rights are, but what associated responsibilities they have tied into those rights. And conversely, individuals need to do a better job at educating themselves on what their rights are and what the responsibilities associated with and those own rights it. are. They have to own it. They do. And they need to be held responsible. And we all need to do a much better job at holding our own selves responsible for our day-to-day -day activities. Because what I might consider freedom of speech, freedom of religion, those types of things, um, might be somewhat offensive to other people. Mm -hmm. Now, we live in a country where it's my right to have those freedoms. But at the same time, I need to assess what it is that I'm doing and how I'm behaving and own the responsibility of my actions if I'm offending another person. That's true. And be able to have a conscious uh, civil dialogue about those types of issues to evoke the changes that might need to come to create a more civil society. That's true. You may have the right to say something, but it doesn't mean it's helpful. <laughs> And it doesn't mean that it's going to make others feel safer. Correct. That's powerful. Well, we appreciate you, Todd. Really, it's you're on the front lines. It's I just as in, in between the breaks, I would ask Todd a million questions, and he can't get into any specifics. But the guy knows a ton, and um, and knows a ton about every a lot of the stories you hear about, and yet 
can't tell everything, and none of us really know it all. So I appreciate you being willing to at least work on that lack of ability to maybe share all the detail and know too much and then still have a happy face. Um, appreciate you, Todd. Todd Palmer again here with the uh, Salt Lake City field office um, with the FBI. Cool stuff. Appreciate you. You bet. Thank you very much. Really great stuff. We're going to have to have Todd back and have him talk more general about a lot of stuff. Guys, there's a lot going on. And luckily, we have guys like Todd on the case. We're going to take a break. Be thinking, do you have somebody that you care about who is uh, suffering adult onset diabetes? We've got a great guest. Richard DeMarchi is going to be joining us. Uh, Richard DeMarchi is going to be teaching us a little bit more about what to look for uh, when it comes to adult onset of diabetes and what uh, we should be doing about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Todd Palmer, man. Agent Palmer from the FBI. What a good stud. hair on that guy. Yeah. It was a good hairdo. He had Mitt Romney hair. He had a good suit, too. He Dapper, but, you know, here's the deal. Very sharp. He, these guys are underappreciated major. That's like the stuff he knows that he couldn't say. It's crazy. I'd ask, I asked about 20 questions in every break. I'd just pepper him with questions, and he'd just smile. He'd say, yep, we're on that one. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And? And <laughs> nothing. He's good at what he does. And yet I sit there and I think he, he get you know, the FBI probably, it's a weird job because, the, you know, all the other agencies probably don't necessarily love him. Because they're the ones that get all the credit. But even though they don't get all the credit. Well, they're also the agency that gets called in when your local agency needs some assistance. Yeah, to investigate. So the local agency has to admit that. And some people are okay with that because they want to get the job done. Other people, it's kind of an ego hit. And and so that's the question is who – because we're on a campus. Who would want to go be an FBI agent, you would think? Because like – like he was saying, he he can't he can't have his his credibility questioned at all. So if he ever got caught lying, doing something stupid, anything, just even like not paying child support or whatever, he wouldn't he he couldn't you know testify in court cases. He just would never be used to testify in a court case again. And yet, that standard is only for a certain level of police law enforcement. That doesn't exist with our pol- our political system. That doesn't exist anywhere else. I mean, our politicians can all be caught in a lie, and yet we're still electing them. Right. But an FBI agent has to have the highest standard. It's kind of a weird <sighs> system. It's a it's a very weird system. And then we don't appreciate them. And no. But I'm telling you, and we've been harping on this idea forever. If we keep making everything so hard for the jobs that we need to have, like an FBI agent. Uh, we're in trouble because what happens if we start lowering that standard? I mean, his standard is so high, and his 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 discipline was so incredible. That's what I thought was cool. Because you, know, you ask a question, he's like, um, yeah. and then he's trying to verbally, you yep. know, jujitsu his way through that, and what a that was guy. nice. 
That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, James, are you still do you still want to be a, an FBI agent after seeing Todd Palmer? I'd say so. Because you always wear that little jacket that says FBI on the back. Yeah. Yep. Yep. One day will be a real jacket. And yeah. It'd be great. Actually, yours doesn't say FBI. Yours just says FB and then the Facebook sign. Mm-hmm. So yours is really just a Facebook jacket. It's not really the same to thing at all. Earn your eye. That's yeah. that's what I go for. You put the eye in the FB. Hey, uh, any other headlines for us, Terry? When we before we take this break, we were going to get into uh, on, uh, adult onset of diabetes, and our guest. Yeah, I think you forgot. We'll get him back. We'll get him back. That's an issue that uh, hits a lot of people's lives, and yeah, we'll, we'll be able to talk with him in the future. North Korea. <gasps> They are prohibiting foreigners from running in their annual marathon. Why? Fears of Ebola. <laughs> There's never been an Ebola case in North Korea. No, no. And the surrounding region, there are no reports of Ebola being there, but no foreigner can run in their marathon over fears of okay. Ebola. Okay. Um, that's weird. Yes. Because but if, it is North if, Korea. So. If you had Ebola, would your first thought be, ah, I'm going to North Korea to well, run that marathon. There's the idea that, you know, if you are exposed to it, yeah. you don't know for several days yeah. you can be contagious. But, you know, do you go from a, from helping out, volunteering, helping save people with Ebola <laughs> to running a marathon the next day? Probably not. You have different priorities in yeah. your life I think, at that let's point. be real. They don't want to have a marathon. No, they do. They don't want to. They're just... I, I think there's... There's a need to keep it in-house. They want a, a person from North Korea to win it. I think what they ought to do. Have you seen Kim Jong-un's... New hair? New, new hair and eyebrows? Yeah. I didn't really notice it being different. Have either. you ever gone to get a haircut and you thought, oh, wow, wow, they overdid it? Like, oh, wow, that'll grow out. Oh, yeah. well. <laughs> I think that's what this is about. He didn't want... Did he get bad hair and he's trying to deflect the yeah. attention? Okay. He's like, he, he, did, he was embarrassed. He's got to run in the marathon. He doesn't want a lot of foreigners coming in. That's um, that's sad. Well, that's too bad for the two people that were going to run the North Korean uh, marathon. The Pongyang Marathon, yes. <laughs> yeah. I think I think it's more about his haircut. I mean, I don't want to. Allegedly. Allegedly. We're going to take a break, my friends. We had a great uh, show. Another two hours of fun and excitement right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back right after this break. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Man, have we got a good show for you today. Woo! Sorry to be excited, but I, I spent a lot of time reading about our first guest and uh, and listening, actually, too. Way excited. Uh, we'll be talking today to uh, a, a researcher, Valerie Hudson, who has put together... A very, an interesting, I think, and an effective argument of a better way to approach peace in the world. You know, we've tried to push free market economy. We've tried to export democracy. We've tried all of these different ways to get everyone in the world 
to change and get better. But man, we may have been overlooking the most easy way to do it, the most basic way to do it. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You just got to stick with this. So good. Uh, Also, um, quick update, because I haven't heard from James uh, if he's still engaged. Uh, James, are you still engaged? You were engaged. engaged as of the weekend. Now you're still engaged. Yes. Yes, still engaged. Things are going very well. I'm now fully immersed in the complexities and, should I say, joys of preparing for a wedding. Yes, you should You should say joys. Yeah, I should. On air, I shall say it joys. Would be, it would be advantageous for you to say <laughs> joys. It is such a pleasant experience. Let me tell you that, Matt. And luckily, you know what's great for you is you chose a long engagement. Yeah, a super long engagement, about two months. Yeah. Oh, is it? <laughs> That's so long. I know. It, it feels like eternity. I thought, it was, I thought you were getting married in August. Nope, May. Oh, man, you're dead. <laughs> That's not much time at all. There's a lot to do. There's okay. so much. Well, good. I was worried that, you know, you, she was getting cold feet. <laughs> but if you want to be our caterer, call one eight five five chat byu If you've got <laughs> catering deals, uh, actually, um, I'll do the catering. Oh, you're going to do the catering. Mm-hmm. Okay. What What's on the menu? Uh, cheese whiz, crackers uh, and spray cheese. That's uh, what I was thinking. Mm, <laughs> yes, man, bacon flavored. Get enough cheese whiz. <laughs> that's a, that's a new commercial right there. For nothing, cheese whiz. This this sec this uh, segment brought to you by Cheese Whiz, man's best friend for twenty years. Best way to start Storage. a wedding. Cheese whiz. <laughs> I'm proud of you, dude. Thanks. I'm glad it's sticking. Yeah, way not to mess it up. Yeah, we we got two months. We got two months. Okay, good. I was really worried about that. Talk about headlines with us, Terry. Uh, A lot of stuff going on in the news. FBI on Wednesday arrested three men from Brooklyn who they allege planned to launch terrorist attacks in the United States if they were not able to join ISIS in Syria or ISIL, depending on your government department. You know, they aren't the smartest terrorists. No. I mean, if, if you're I, they, going to do this... They weren't necessarily terrorists yet. They were sympathizers. They were planning. They were working that way. One, Two guys from Uzbekistan, one from Kazakhstan. I think two of them were here legally. One had an expired visa, something of that nature. So um, they were arrested, charged with conspiracy to, to provide material support to a foreign terrorist organization. According to law enforcement officials, the men also plan to return to New York to commit an act of domestic terrorism if they failed their efforts to join ISIS on social media sites that were monitored. They mentioned um, taking out the president, taking out Coney Island, taking out some other locations. Um, so, yeah, they broadcasted it wide and far what they wanted you know, to do. You yeah. Facebook's Which, not, but probably where you want to initiate your push for becoming a terrorist. Yes. I mean, yeah. And this is the, the homegrown terrorist, the lone wolf terrorist type concepts we were talking with. Yeah, our this was like a this was like a pack. FBI. This is a pack of pack of wolves. That's scary because they could, you know, that just shows you again that a lot can go wrong if we don't pay attention. But the preemptive yeah. nature of law enforcement, they're able to kind of pick Nailed these guys it. off. Well, and the, the fact that these guys aren't well, the not very smart brightest. Either. Yeah. Light bulb. Yeah, well, it, it's great that they're posting stuff to social media. I mean, 
It makes, yeah. They should be like a Facebook page that's the I should be in jail Facebook page, and they can post things that they're going to do. You know what? Because if they're going to keep posting stuff on Facebook, I'm pretty sure my wife will be able to bring down ISIL. (laughs) (laughs) There's nobody. She's a machine. That knows Facebook better than my (laughs) wife. She is, she's a researcher. She researches Facebook. U.S. military combat vehicles from the U.S. Army's 2nd Cavalry Regiment paraded Wednesday through an Estonian city. Wow. It's called uh, the city of Narva. Yeah. It's on the very eastern edge. It's Good city. Only a few miles separate for, uh, from that city from Russia, which is why they did it. Interesting. Uh, it, actually, a part of the city juts, juts into Russia. It's a symbolic act highlighted the stakes both sides Amid the worst tensions between the West and Russia since the Cold War, the armored personnel carriers and other U.S. Army vehicles that rolled through the streets were taking part in a military parade to mark Estonia's Independence Day. Hmm. So, like, Independence Day? Yeah, we'll bring over the <laughs> Second Cavalry. <laughs> Isn't this interesting? I mean, the, I, again, it almost seems like they're at war. NATO has had – they either have plans or they've started moving – like uh, defense uh, groups into closer proximity to Russia. Yeah. And that has Russia really I'm sure. not uh, happy with those sorts of movements causing them to uh, – uh, there's been uh, – I was watching a video. There's been uh, what Russian bombers are flying across the border from Russia into Eastern European Ooh, countries. Oh, doing little flybys. Doing training and- flights and then – uh, those countries send up their fighters to kind of shadow them, and they're yeah, well, all looking at each other. Yeah. And he's he's a tease, that yes. Putin. He he knows how to push people's buttons. Classic Vlad. <laughs> Classic Vlad. <laughs> That's funny. This one, you're, you can't call him Vlad. Oh, we're on a we're on a nickname basis. Are you guys close? Yeah. Is he coming to the wedding? Um, I am going to send an invitation. See what happens. He's got. He's a busy guy, though. You know, Vlad. Vlad. Yeah. Rich dude. He just He'll shows get you up. Good present. Send Provo. Hey, what's going on? Hey. <laughs> this one made me laugh. House Speaker John Boehner gave the chambers four hundred plus members a few reminders Wednesday about decorum inside the halls of Congress, including rules on punctuality and proper attire. Ah. The Ohio Republican delivered a subtle reprimand, telling offenders, "You know who you are." Male members are supposed to wear a coat and tie on the floor when final votes are cast. Some members, notably Representative Sam Graves of Missouri and uh, Duncan Hunter Jr. of California, routinely show up in leather jackets and blue jeans to vote. Well, those are the cool guys. Boehner also told members they need to start arriving on time, and there was an applause to that because apparently people think there needs to be a certain amount of decorum when you're representing your country. Representing citizens. This isn't the scout troop. <laughs> you roll in in a leather jacket to vote on a tax initiative or something. I mean, you would want to distinguish yourself. You'd want to dress a little differently. I mean, seriously. I mean, don't you think? I mean, Harry Reid wears sunglasses. Right. Well. So why can't these guys wear leathers? James would walk in with his chaps on. I just, I found it funny that the Speaker of the House had to tell everyone the dress code. You guys. Guys. Come on. Wear a tie. I'm serious. <laughs> Don't make me reprimand you. But see, they just run in. You know, they're probably in their offices. You know, doing Zumba. Right. They're just hanging out playing. And then some, they got. Oh, we got to vote. Gotta playing Candy in. Crush or something, and then they come running in. Oh wait, something they're, important's happened. I had to vote. Oh, they're in their leisure suit. Ah, <laughs> oh, geez. Well, okay. That's Pluto. Good. 
Yeah. Has, uh, the dog or the planet? Yes. The almost no. planet. 2006, Pluto was demoted. I know. That was so sad. There I was Pluto. There was consternation about that. It was, well. People were not happy. If you, you know, it's like at Disneyland. If, you, if you're not this tall, you can't go on the ride. Especially kids like me who had to learn the planets. Yeah. Now you have to leave off Pluto? Yeah. What's going on there? Well, Pluto and another so-called dwarf planet named Cirrus oh, could be reclassified God. as planets later this year. Vanderbilt astronomer David Wintraub? Sure. Yeah, sure. He thinks that with the information from NASA spacecraft that will visit both dwarf planets I mean, do they want to be year, called dwarf planets? That's how they're classified, because they're Should, not a planet. Well, aren't they supposed to be called little planets? They could be called that, but that's a video game. Might yeah, be that, kind of confusing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, true. but I, I just think... Okay, so they might become planets again. Now, I found this out. Pluto was demoted because it's not seen as the dominant object in its orbit because it crosses with another planet. So it's not always the furthest planet out. See, the psychologist in me says that it's not a narcissist. It's not the dominant object in its orbit. Right. So they might come back. It's what happens when you get married. You all of a sudden are not the dominant object in your orbit. I I become a Pluto. That's right. You're demoted. You become a dwarf planet. You're number two. (laughs) But but, and then but your spouse becomes the sun. Yeah, the gravitational pull from the spouse is incredible. Hot. (laughs) In the sense of they just affect your whole life. They just blow it all up and they demand things. Oh, sorry. In the end. This is a great lesson for you, James. Okay. Sometimes you're a pla- sometimes you're a planet. Sometimes you're the sun. Sometimes you're a dwarf planet. Play your role. Give it. A, give it some. Sometimes you're not even a planet. You're just an an astronomical entity. Sometimes you'll be brought back in. That, that is that's, blowing my mind. You're that's just the circle of life. You're just dark matter. You're the stuff in between the stars. This, this is so deep. I'm not even sure I uh, understand. <laughs> it this completely. is why we do the morning show. Wow. Because we want people to know. Sometimes, you know, you're big. Sometimes you're just a dwarf planet. So Pluto could become it's a good, planet again. It's good stuff. There you go. Man, great news. Uh, have we got a guest for you? Valerie Hudson is joining us. Um, author. She's she's one of, I believe, four authors that wrote the book Sex and World Peace. And she's here to teach us a new way that we that we might want to look at creating peace in the world. Instead of just exporting, you know, the market economy idea or exporting democracy, maybe there's a, a more even basic concept that if we could just wrap our heads around it, we could change the world and create more peace. We'll talk about that when we come back with our guest, Valerie Hudson. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, when you think about world peace and just listening to the news over and over and over, I guess there's a lot of uh, theories for how you go about creating a, a safer world and and more world peace. But uh, there's really an idea that I have fallen in love with by Valerie Hudson. She she and a few other authors, Bonnie Balif-Spanville, Mary Caprioli, and Chad Emmett 
have all together written a book, Sex and World Peace. And in the book, they um, they basically outline a, a new – it really shouldn't be a new theory or a new philosophy for world peace. But it's it's so it really is basic and powerful. Uh, so we wanted to bring Valerie on today. Valerie is a professor and chair in the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A and M University. She also was on faculty here at Brigham Young University and um, has has really received a lot of awards. Foreign Policy named her one of the top 100 most influential global thinkers. She's also served as vice president of the International Studies Association. So let's just get to her. Valerie Hudson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, nice to be here. Great to have you. And I, I, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I want you to just teach us your basic premise for creating world peace. Well, Matt, I think it's pretty simple, which is uh, you're not going to get peace between nations unless you have peace between the two halves of humanity, hmm. uh, male and female. Uh, and to think that, that we can have uh, oppressive or exploitative or violent relationships uh, between the two halves of humanity and then expect somehow magically that we're going to, say, solve the Arab-Israeli conflict is, is really, you know, uh, unrealistic. Right. No, exactly. And, and, and you, you tested the idea and, and went about – aggregating the research. In fact, one of the great, I think, contributions or outcomes of this is your website, um, the Women's Stats Project. Right? Oh, We're- thank you very much. Yes. Um, believe it or not, uh, BYU and Texas A&M are hosts to the largest compilation of information about the status of women available anywhere in the world. And it's freely accessible uh, through Internet. Oh, I mean, it really, it's, it, I think it's phenomenal. So everybody go check out that website, womenstats.org. But tell me, let, let's kind of get into some of the details. So this, isn't, this doesn't have to be divisive because it's not a male-female, a man-against-women thing that a lot of people, you know, I don't know, seem to fight against when, when you think of a movement like this. It's more the simple idea that when women are are in communities or uh, globally in countries where they are safer and um, protected and uh, given equal opportunities and equal voice, those countries flourish more than where they're not. Hands down. I mean, the empirical evidence is so overwhelming that, you know, we should consider it some sort of, you know, law of the universe. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> the universal law. True. It yeah, should the be. universal law. You want to flourish as a nation state? Yeah. You know, Elevate all women. humans, right? Yeah, it's it's uh whether we're talking food security, whether we're talking economic prosperity, whether we're talking health, whether we're talking government, you know, whatever aspect of nation state security, national security you want to point to, I can show you empirically, and others can as well, many other scholars have done research also on this topic, that the the more empowered women are, the better off you're on all of these dimensions. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. Like you were saying, if half of humanity isn't empowered, then how could those countries or areas of the world thrive and flourish to the same level than if we were all empowered and, and growing? And one of the things I, I love how you actually came to to push this research. You were sitting with a bunch of faculty 
and uh, you were giving your idea, your hypothesis, I guess, that women um, that 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 evaluating the security and the health of women was a was a basic factor for creating world peace. I, I think that was your premise. To talk about what your story there, and then and then how you went and started researching and found out that you know there's there's many more women that have suffered over the years than than men. Yeah, it's it is true. Um, although I'm surprised uh, BYU Radio is asking me this because it happened at BYU. Sure. But it, it is true that um, when I first began to propose this research in my department, um, you know, over a decade ago, uh, the the first reaction was, you know, if, you, if you're interested in blood spilt and lives lost, you know, you need to look at democratization. You need to look at ideology. You know, women are really not part of this picture. And I think that was pretty common for that time period. Yeah. I, I have, you know, no doubt that, um, you know, if, we, if I were to do this again in the Department of Political Science, that things would be far different. Um, but uh, I, I must admit, I was kind of struck speechless by the fact that I was told I was barking up the wrong tree entirely, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, they could see no merit in the idea. So, uh, you know, I went back to my office very, very discouraged, and uh, and yet there was something inside of me that, that knew that this was actually correct, and that they were simply down on what they were not up on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did a little thought experiment, enlisted the help of my research assistant, and we put together uh, a tally sheet of um, the best estimates of how many lives had been lost in all of the conflicts, whether uh, interstate conflicts or civil conflicts or genocides that had taken place throughout the entire 20th century. Uh, and we come up, I think we came up with a figure of about 152 million. And then we took the UN's estimate of how many women were missing from the world's population just at the end of the century, right? So we're comparing 100 years of lives lost versus how many women should be in the world's population but aren't at the turn of the 21st century. And that latter figure was 163 million. Mm. So if you want to talk about blood spilt and lives lost, I think you've got to talk about women. There is a there's a hidden, if you will, gender side uh, that's going on that that doesn't make the front page of the New York Times, but is in fact shaping our world. For example, by all rights, okay, given that women live longer than men, mm-hmm. there should be about 98 men on the planet for every 100 women. But in fact, Matt there are 101.4 men for every 100 women on the planet. Hmm. That's not natural. Right, no. no plague caused that, right? right. That oh. is entirely man-made. Women are no longer half of humanity for reasons of gender inequality, gender discrimination, and the devaluation of female life. I mean, just Why in... aren't we talking about that? Well, right? exactly. And, I get, and I, as you think about it, just China alone, right? They're selecting right. out the gender of, the, right. of women, of female. Uh, and um, the year 2020, the Chinese government estimates that among the young adult population from 15 to 34, there'll be um, about 50 million more men than women. Wow. 
It, and and it really, the, I guess your your belief is we're not even we're not even talking about it. So your your basic goal is to just start talking and getting the real the real data out that we are safer as a world with um, with equality. Well, yes, and I think you know I think policymakers are actually talking more about it than security studies folks. You mm-hmm. know, if we, we want to talk about Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. You know, I have a book out this summer, coming this summer, from Columbia called The Hillary Doctrine. Um, and she has actually made that, uh, you know, part of, of her uh, understanding of the world, which is to the extent that you empower women, you make nations uh, more peaceful and, and safer, more secure. Uh, and so I, I do think, you know, we do have some high-level voices like Hillary Clinton talking about mm-hmm. this. Uh, but I think we also have a larger establishment that's really not geared up to see women, to notice women, to pay attention to these issues, in part because their own culture, our own American culture, tells us to, that these are not necessarily that important issues. It's interesting because so even as an American culture, I guess we, we're – I'm assuming dramatically ahead of other cultures, some cultures, yeah. but not <laughs> quite – there yet. Yeah, you know, our our levels of uh, violence against women, uh, and I'm, again, I'm speaking here as the result of the data in our database, um, puts the U.S. kind of smack dab in the middle of the pack of nations. You know, we're certainly not the worst, as mm-hmm. you said, but we're by no means the best, yeah. not at all. And then our representation of women, even in Congress, you know, has never gone above 20%, right? Never. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what does that say? What does it say when, um, when, when women are endlessly talking about how they can possibly balance work and family because the workplace has set up, been set up around the image of the male worker who has no family responsibilities? Mm-hmm. How, do you, um, how do you train? I mean, I guess it's just communicating it, about it enough that it becomes an option because is, aren't a lot of uh, women are still choosing certain careers. They're still choosing certain fields, right? So it is some of it is their choice. They might be choosing roles that might even not pay as well. But is it just that if we have more conversations, then they'll, they'll understand there are more options? Oh, um, you mean on what sort of jobs women choose? Yeah, well, and equality, pay equality. Really a huge issue that we could go into. The question is, it, when we talk about women's choice, you have to look at the context in which they're making that choice, yeah. right? So, for example, in, in other countries, um, there, there's all sorts of, of, of flex time options. There's all sorts of, of uh, child care options. There's all sorts of maternity leave policies. They're just not available to American women. We're one of three countries in the world that has no paid maternity leave. Um, there's a couple of states that do have paid maternity leave, but for the country as a whole, we have nothing like that, hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so that puts us really as an outlier. Uh, so when we talk about women's choices, we have to look at the context in which those choices are made. And that's what we need, I think, to uh, to hone in on is the structure of the choices and not the choices themselves. I, I love that. Do you, do you sense that um, it's harder to move the needle in this area in the United States or would it be harder to move it in the Middle East or are they the same thing? Uh, they're both hard. Yeah. But they're hard in different ways. 
right? Yeah. Uh, many of the cultures of the Middle East, uh, you know, they've interpreted uh, their particular re- religion to imply, you know, that that women uh, should have less rights, that women should have less voice, um, that perhaps male-on-female violence could be condoned in a religious uh, context. Um, but uh, in the United States, we we do not have those premises, um, but yet we, we still we live in a society where, where women uh, are, are subject uh, to routine harassment and discrimination, uh, and that's something we need to look at. How could that flourish in a society that says it regards women as equal? Hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you um, I guess as I think about, like just in the news as we were doing the beginning of the show and starting the show, so many stories, terrorism, um, and all of these kind of global problems that are going on. Do you, and you, your premise is basically maybe instead of just pushing democracy as the source of trying to kind of the paradigm that will break or shatter some of these problems, you're saying more, why aren't we just pushing gender equality? Yeah, and, and you know, Matt, in a sense, um, gender equality says, let's look at the home, the household, yeah, and see if it's a democracy, a peaceful democracy. And if it's not, a peaceful democracy right. in the home. The community won't be, right? It, exactly. How could it be? Yeah. I mean, it's such a basic theory, and yet uh, what it's, it still creates fear, I think, in a lot of men when they hear this argument. It's almost like men—I mean, just not even the oppressive man, just the kind of average guy it might be sitting there thinking, well— oh. What do you want me to do about it? I didn't oppress these women. So what 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 should we do instead of I guess recoiling and thinking feminists? What should we be thinking to be healthy? Well, yeah, I think there's two levels of action on the part of the United States, you know. And one is, which I think we saw with Hillary Clinton, is that we make it integral to our foreign policy um that you know we pay attention to what's happening to women in other nations and assist women insofar as we can. And USAID, yeah. the major aid-granting agency of, of the federal government, um, takes this extremely seriously. We have very creative and wide-ranging USAID programs to try to lift the situation of women abroad. And and so that should continue to be a priority um, of our of our government in its interstate relations. But, you know, at home, you know, it all starts at home, right? Yeah. So every man, every woman, uh, can we interrogate our interpersonal relationships? Can we also ask ourselves, uh, you know, whether um, are we engaged in particular activities, such as watching porn, which does not help the status of women in Mm-mm. society? Right. Uh, can we ask ourselves about subtle discrimination? I'm sure you've seen all the headlines recently about research that shows um, that um, a person's rating, uh, for example, of a teacher yeah, or yep. is, is yeah. completely dependent on sex. Yeah. So even if it's online and you can't actually see the person, if they pretend to be a male, even if they're a woman, they'll get higher evaluations oh, wow. than if they r- reveal themselves to be a woman. Plus, plus, we they also throw in the red hot pepper rating, which yeah. means the professor's also good looking. 
And I, I kept telling everybody I wanted to be put on that, but then I was afraid I, I don't know, I'd probably get a Rotten Tomato thing. Um, but when we, I mean, it really is. It's an. I had no, I hadn't seen those headlines that we actually rate a male professor higher than a female Even if professor. It's a female pretending to be a male online where you can't tell can't the see difference. Him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a. Well, what is that about? Uh, you know, it's just Matt, visceral. If I could answer that question, There's... I would, you know, I would be so happy because I can tell you until, you know, I'm blue in the face. I can show you that if you treat women as human beings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, all of you are going to be much happier, women and men. For example, in countries where where women are treated uh, worse, the life expectancy is lower for women, yes, but you know what? It's also lower for men. For men, absolutely. Right? So, so many wonderful things happen for men, even, yeah. Yeah. when women are treated as equals, that the thought really does make reason stare. Yeah. Why would anyone not do this, then? <laughs> well, it, 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 I guess it's just we're not informed. Yeah, is it? or it could be that for some reason there's, shall we say, benefits to controlling, uh, oppressing, gratifying ourselves at the expense of other human yeah. beings. Yeah, well, even and right. even at the expense of longevity, health. I mean, right. So it must be, or yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's something you know of the the our DNA and evolution of dominance. I don't know. There's something. Because it is. If it's going to end up costing us years of life and longevity and health, uh, we probably need to use our brains a little bit more on this one. You know, that actually, I'm going to set my research assistant on that. I'm going to figure out uh, what's the gain in life expectancy from not smoking versus the gain in life expectancy from treating women as human beings. That's great. Doesn't that sound like no, a great totally. comparison? Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, and then when you do it, let's. I want her on the show. <laughs> I want. I, I think I should have you know first right of refusal on that one. You got it, Matt. Well, you got it. I appreciate what you're doing, Valerie. And it's. I mean, again, every time I I hear, I, I think we just have to keep teaching it, keep teaching it. Uh, and I love the way you do it because it's not. Uh, I mean, it's not. It's not oppositional. You're not trying to just oppose and impose you're just the data is there people just need to get it yeah a sincerely equal partnership between women and men makes everything so much better from the individual level to the state level to the international level that's right and honestly that's why i loved uh that's why i wanted to bring up how it started here even at byu with just kind of probably an 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 uninformed ignorant statement that that was then born in your heart in a way, Valerie. That that's created this, I think, incredible movement. So, um, and the neat thing is, on top of it, I guess three of your four authors are were affiliated with BYU as well. Chad right, Emmett, yeah. Chad Emmett. I love the comment he made at uh, the Wilson Center, where he's like, "What does a white male Mormon have to do with this topic?" I think he's got everything to do Don't with you the think topic. T- that's see, that's the it. beauty of it. That's exactly it. Because we really are, you know, brothers and sisters trying to trying to just act like brothers and sisters instead of oppressive. The greatest champions of women yeah. should, at a minimum, be the Chad Emmets, the uh-huh. white Mormon males of right. the world. No, God bless him for it. Well, and I agree. <laughs> and God bless you, Valerie, because you're changing the world. You really are. And we'll keep pushing 
the idea. And again, we're, we're ignorant as well. Sometimes we don't even know that we're stepping on your toes when we're stepping on your toes. So don't you worry keep, about it. You keep educating us. We'll keep uh, pushing the message. Valerie, thanks so much. All righty. Keep up the great work. I appreciate it. You Thank bet. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, the book is Sex and World Peace by Valerie Hudson, Bonneth Balleth, Spanville, Mary Caprioli, and Chad, uh, Chad F. Emmett. Go check out that, uh, that work. Again, just the idea, treating half of humanity as equal and creating equal opportunities in every way, shape, or form. Just the right to live in some countries, the right to go to school, if you remember the scenarios where acid was thrown on the face of those beautiful uh, Middle Eastern uh, girls because they were simply going to school. Just giving those rights equally, folks, it's going to change the world. That's how we find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break, come back, uh, continue this discussion right here on BYU Radio. to the Matt Townsend Show. Would have loved to have had Valerie on longer. She had a commitment she had to go to. But I love the discussion. And it's, you know, it's so interesting um, because sometimes just our differences uh, create a, a perfect opportunity to have what I call an emergent reality. So, for example, sun, clouds, Two completely differing, you know, um, elements and, uh, you know, the, the rain, the storm, the clouds, the sun that's trying to make it through. When these two come together, uh, you know, a lot of times the sun is blocked. And um, but in the end, something powerful can emerge from those two differences if we just kind of sometimes relax and let stuff happen. And what emerges is would be the rainbow, right? And I think the same thing happened in a way. I can't speak for Valerie, but so Valerie was on campus here at BYU for 24 years and was studying about women's rights in safety and security uh, is one of her specialties and kind of like world security. So she's she's big into political science and how to create strong, safe spaces or, uh, you know, um, governments creating safer world um, protected countries, I guess. In the end, though, she's sitting down with a bunch of other poli-sci people, researchers, that aren't necessarily in her realm, all have their own kind of version of life, their own uh, paradigm. She throws out an idea simply that says, uh, you know, we really need to explore more the power and the security of women as a vital factor in the security of state and the incidents of war. And just remember, we so many of us just go right with our gut reaction and our paradigm, and we stay by just doing that, by never opening up and just listening to others, we don't relax enough to let the, the two ideas turn into something new. And they weren't being, I'm sure, just oppressive. She, they were just being professorial, probably, and, you know, white men, probably, traditionally. And she went and learned and studied and researched and then could build an argument that is powerful. And I think, again, it's it's probably the way we're going to change the world. 
We're not going to change it by continually thinking the exact same things over and over. John Stuart Mill said, when society requires to be rebuilt, there is no use in attempting to rebuild it on the old plan. No great improvements in the lot of mankind are possible until a great change takes place in the fundamental constitution of their modes of thought. So at this rate, folks, I'm betting that we are probably not going to change the world if we keep thinking that, for in this example, half of humanity isn't equal or worthy of the full rights of humanity. It's not going to happen. So are you saying, Matt, that if we just, if all the women in the Middle East had all the equal types of rights, and I'm not just even saying rights to to um, to vote, but rights for sexual reproduction in a way, or rights for um, education simply, or the rights to be heard and have a voice in the common discussions, or a right to run for certain offices. If they don't have that, then who on earth do you think will ever change those paradigms? We have to have the differences, whether it's civil rights, right? By the way, I mean, again, we can be frustrated by um, what's going on everywhere. In Ferguson, Missouri, we can be frustrated by it. We, we heard all over the Oscars about equality, and yet these are from people in, in one of the – in America, folks, where America is, you know, we're doing a pretty good job of this. We have a lot to do still, but go somewhere else. Go to, you know, North Africa. Go to Somalia, where genital mutilation is still in play. <sighs> if we want to change the world, folks, we have to allow other thoughts in. It doesn't mean you have to always change your values and your principles. But if your value and your principle is set in a strong, healthy principle, not position, positions are different a lot of times than principles. Principles could be a principle of open, a principle of loving, a principle of caring, a principle of security, a principle of growth and learning. Those are all principles. If we focused our lives on those principles, we probably would have room for a lot of these uh, arguments that everyone that we're making about fairness and equality. Those could all fit under our our own existing principles. Ah, powerful. Really, it changed it changed my mind a lot. Um, in just and there's a great project, uh, Women's Stats Project, the largest gathering of statistics of the worldwide status of women, containing over 170,000 data points and growing every day. Um, it's covering 350 variables from the right to vote to right to and access to health care to um, you name it, security, security in the community, security for maternity, you know, uh, all of these things. And why I love it so much is it is founded by a lot of sponsors from Texas A&M and a lot from Brigham Young University. The Women's Research Institute at BYU, the College of Family, Home, and Social Sciences at BYU, the Marjorie Pay Hinckley Chair of BYU, they're all behind this in an effort to create a healthier world by creating safer and more secure 
lives for women around the world. Powerful stuff, my friends. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have a few more minutes to wrap up this first hour. And then uh, on to hour number two. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as we're talking about kind of fairness uh, and equality, uh, apparently Abercrombie and Fitch, they've... Fitch? Fitch? Yes. Fitch. Fitch. It's F-I-T-C-H. So. They're, they're the in trouble. Company. Yes. I mean, they're always in trouble. Yeah, they're always sort of pushing that line of public yeah. decency sometimes with yeah, their... These uh, teens dressed. In their catalogs. Mm-hmm. For, uh, well, it's more like, not decency, but more taste. People mm-hmm. are like, have they gone too far with this? And Yeah. I mean, for the most part, it's clothing that they're selling. But right. I think people, people question whether that's too much. Uh, the Supreme Court, if you ever read Supreme Court stories, you Every day. some of them start with Can't get <laughs> court watchers, yeah. which is court the same watchers. thing as royal watchers. They're yeah. reporters who uh, cover court. Court watchers, boring people who have that love the law. Or people who have a tough job taking something really boring and spinning <laughs> into something interesting. So the Supreme court, court on Wednesday found the justices appearing to side with a Muslim woman who was not hired by Abercrombie and Fitch because her black headscarf supposedly conflicted with the company's dress code. While Samantha Eloff did not say she was wearing it for religious reasons, Justice Samuel Alito said there was no reason for the company not to hire her unless it assumed she would continue to wear it because she was Muslim. Reports from the court indicate that both liberal and conservative justices were aggressive in their questioning of the Abercrombie lawyer. So she walks in with a job interview. She's wearing a headscarf. They said, that's not our dress code. We'll see you later. Well, you, but you, you can't ask. Can you? Can you? I mean, you... Ask your religion in well, a job yeah. interview? No. No, no. But you can't ask because that is religious. So that they couldn't ask. So not knowing, they just didn't extend a job offer. Yes. Huh. And so uh, the other side of it is I didn't get hired because I'm Muslim. Yeah. Or you assumed I'm Muslim because of my headscarf. Right. Even though it wasn't discussed, that's that's what she... You know, maybe something was said in the interview that led her to believe that way. And I mean, so this has gone through the courts. It's all the way up to the Supreme Court. I just I found that interesting. That is interesting. And can you discriminate because of someone's religious dress? Apparently, if it doesn't meet your company's dress code, can you make that? I, I don't know. Well, there's uh, there's the Sikh religion, and they wear like a turban, and mm-hmm. so, and they carry a knife. Sometimes, yeah, but so, but I, it's part of the. It's but they carry it anyway. A okay. lot of high schools have to allow oh, okay. these boys that are wearing their headdress with a knife. I thought we were back to the story yesterday where the guys are fighting in the oh, no, Dubai no, no, restroom of sorts. They, okay. Those are real sorts. So. But so so it's interesting because you know schools don't allow weapons. Except Sikhs carry a weapon as part of their religious attire. Hmm. So schools then end up having to grant like a waiver for this boy to bring a knife. It's a a special knife. It's not like a ceremonial type thing. Yeah. Anyway, so watch how complicated this is getting as we turn into a global economy or a global world. And we just talked about the the importance of at least allowing 50 percent of the population to have equal rights to everything, basically. Um, 
what about how all of a sudden we have all these great laws, you know, companies are protected, schools are protected. We need to protect our kids. There shouldn't be um, there shouldn't be knives at school. And yet we also have to tolerate a religious difference. So and, and yet we're not allowed to talk about it. It comes. Yeah. You're not allowed to ask questions. But at the same time, you can't just make one rule that's blanket for every no. situation that never, almost never works. And you might need to have times where we can talk about it. Even in an interview, right? If it's going to violate the policy, if I find you're incredible in every way, we how do we bridge that, or do we just? I guess everyone would assume we just need to change all policies. Yeah, in this case, it almost it looked like the the clothing company needed to have a discussion about is that going to be something that's on every day, and then figure out is that something going to work because the dress code is what t-shirts and jeans sure. probably. Oh sure, and so, honestly, if you walked into an Abercrombie and Fitch store, would you not think, oh, that's Wow, cool, inclusive. Right. But they looked at it as, oh, that's not our dress code. If she, if she wore a trucker, it. if it was like a trucker ball cap, yeah. it'd be fine. Isn't that true? Because they sell those in the store or probably. If you just, or isn't that weird? Or Because I mean, Abercrombie is always in the news, and we're not trying to beat up Abercrombie, but they're always in the news for not wearing enough clothes. Yes. So heaven forbid you're covering up too much, yet that's so respectful. And I'm going to bet if you went and talked to Abercrombie, they might be thinking – Sometimes your PR department or some person's just trying to follow policy, and they might do it in a more zealous way than you may have ever wanted them to that way because I'm sure they don't want to be in the news with the Supreme Court right now. No, absolutely not. <laughs> not for this. So um, They want to be in it for their uh, catalogs because that, that's kind of edgy. Yeah. This that, is oh, like, and everyone's uh, going to go look at it. Yeah. But maybe this is part of the deal, too, when you think about – like we were talking about earlier. This is maybe where we need to start thinking. And notice that there's going to be differences. We, we always draw these black and whites, these strong lines. And sometimes maybe the lines that are the policies keep us from thinking, keeping keep people from thinking. But what's the right uh, thing to do versus what do I do to follow the rules? And then we right. go full circle now where, though, remember, President Obama is really being careful not to peg this as a war against Islam. So he doesn't want to use the word Islam, doesn't want to use it with extremists. And he's saying that because that's what they want to hear to be uh-huh. to legitimize their movement. Well, yeah. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to be the spokesperson. He wants for them ISIS. to be terrorists. He wants them to be radicals in that way. But he doesn't want to associate yeah. them with a religion because that's what they want. Isn't this weird? But then there's a ton of backlash on Obama for that. It's complicated. And so think about it just you as the average Joe. If you walked into an Abercrombie, would you sit there and think, oh, why is she wearing that headdress, that hubby, hajib? Why I would, is she wearing I that? would think, whoa, those jeans are expensive. What am I doing in the That's store? Exactly. I'd like, what the? <laughs> going to the Gap. That's mine. That's interesting. But, I mean, but think about it, I guess, in our lives. Would we discriminate against that? When you see somebody wearing something like that, do you immediately discriminate? Do you think, ugh, there's a terrorist? Because if that's where your head goes, you got to work there. This isn't about working on Amber- Abercrombie. you got to work on your own head. When you see somebody walking across the street covered like that, do you have, an, do you have a reaction, an emotion, a thought? I wouldn't immediately think weird or terrorist. And it's weird. It doesn't matter. It could be the same thing. It could just be a guy low-riding pants like James when he walks in. You're like, James, pull your pants up. It could be, um, it could be Mormon missionaries riding their bikes down the street. It could be um, just people that – it could be Amish. It could be – There's think of this country. It's everywhere. Yeah. I wonder if the Amish could get a job at Abercrombie. 
I don't know. I know the missionaries. Good. Hats and beards. I don't know if that's in their dress code. You can't work as a missionary. Um, anyway, interesting discussion. It's cool, folks. This is life. And isn't it interesting how complex it's getting? It's much more complicated now. You open up the Internet, for heaven's sakes, things get crazy. We're going to take a break. Hour number one. Done. Wrapped up with a nice little bow. When we come back, hour number two, have we got a a cool topic for you. We're going to be talking about a worm robot. What if we took a worm's brain and put it in a robot? What would happen then? We'll talk about it up next hour right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Thursday. I don't know why I said it that way. Is that how you wake up? That's how I feel. That's how I feel. There's something. Oh, I know what it is. Oh, so, he did it again. We had we had a clock. Holy cow! This brings ah. Uh, we have a we have a clock in our bathroom, which adjoins to our bedroom, and it, I don't want to brag, but it was a clock that was a um. I don't know what you call it. Uh, it was a perfect time clock. It was like the it changed automatically whenever daylight savings would hit. It would just auto. It was like it's smart. Yeah, it does things beyond you. Beyond me, and you right. know where we why it's so expensive and powerful is we got it from Bed Bath and Beyond, of course. And um, it was as the seen on clock. TV, yeah. right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> as seen on late night TV. Well, after daylight savings, I don't know. It's kind of like the the two thousand calamity where none of the clocks were were supposed to work when the year two thousand hit Y two K. Well, it hit, but it hit about fifteen years later than Y two K. And my clock stopped. It just stopped. So we had to buy a new clock. Well, my wife bought a new clock. And um, I put it up yesterday, last night. And that thing ticked mm. all night long, like I guess it's supposed to. I was awake but it's loud. 40 times. thinking. I woke up one time thinking of three little pigs building a house in perfect, perfect rhythmic order. <laughs> <laughs> All night long, I could hear that thing ticking. And uh, my wife says, well, yeah, we could take it down. Yeah. We have. Oh, we, it's going down. We have one of those. And some nights, I don't even, I can't even tell it's there. Other nights, it's the loudest thing in the entire Isn't house. Isn't that wild? Yeah. It's, there's like a piece missing on the bottom of the clock where I threw it once. The silencer. Yeah, I just went. You threw your clock? That's not mad. Mine's up on the wall. I'll go, so I have to like climb to get I'll it. I'll go in and just pop the batteries out. Mm. That's good. Then, it, then it still looks decorative. Yeah. Without all the tick. It's, it's right Honestly. twice a day. It's funny, though. Your subconscious is like, your conscience is like, is this going to go all night? This is going to happen all night. Tick. And then it tries to make up stories in your brain. <laughs> tick. Tick. Golfing, putting balls that just keep dropping in. Bloop. 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 That sounds maddening. It was maddening. And so I got, I got four hours of sleep, if that. Three hours of sleep. 
But just so you know, totally on time today. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Way to show up to work on time. When you when you show, I showed up totally on time, and uh, you know, because I was thinking about getting up for about four hours. Well, that's good. I usually get up and go do something at that point. Yeah, I can't. Do I that. go in the other room, watch TV, hang out. Yeah, but see, then I, I'd fall asleep. <laughs> so now I'm just gonna, you know, whatever, start my day and then take my eleven o'clock nap under my table, under my desk. Well, that's good. That's a good place to take a nap. Uh, if you don't move, the lights don't turn on. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's how your office works. <laughs> it's kind of scary because if I just freeze for more than ten seconds, ten minutes, uh, if I don't move, all my lights in my office turn off, and if I'm asleep, I don't know it. So people come and get me, and I'm sitting there in the dark. You look in the office. Oh, what are you doing? See, that's what's bad because everyone here at BYU Broadcasting, anybody that does audio editing, can just go into an audio bay, and it's it's dark in there. And I think everyone goes in and pretends to edit because there's a lot of editing going on in this company, and we don't everyone's, put out a lot of audio. We're just sleeping. <laughs> Everyone's taking naps. I'm so jealous. I need to do more of my own audio editing. Take a note, James. Okay. Uh, note to self, more audio editing in dark edit bays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lock the door so no one can just come on in lock and door. interrupt okay. my nap. Over. Over Sincerely, knowledge. Dr. Matt. A.K.A. Talent. <laughs> A.K.A. Talent. talent. <laughs> Lots of developments overnight. What? Oh, man, I know. This is tragic. Two police officers shot by unknown assailants yeah. during a protest in Ferguson that was actually <sighs> celebrating the uh, fact that the chief of police, Tom Jackson, resigned. <sighs> so they got together to kind of, I guess, commemorate the fact that the guy walked away. He uh, He's part of the uh, oh. the issues they've been having there with, yeah. with uh, dealing with race. And so they uh, he was asked to step down by the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were people were celebrating, and then about midnight when it was dispersing, somebody took a couple shots of the cops. Two cops injured. Yeah. I mean, one guy shot in the shoulder, uh, one guy shot in the face. Or they both should be fine, but still, they're shooting cops again. It doesn't fix anything. It now has seriously complicated stuff. Yes, you know it's probably time that, and I maybe you just need to do a do over. Well, do you remember in a football play? I mean, like a, when you're playing with your friends and it just didn't go well. Everyone's yeah. like, hey, do over, do over. And we just Take a do mulligan, it do it yeah. again. Yeah. Don't you think? Could be. I don't know if what you can you? actually pull that off in this situation. Well, no, maybe what you need to do is just bring in another police department for a while. Well, the the uh, one of them was from the St. Louis County Police, yep. yeah. so sheriff type of situation. Another guy, another, uh, the other uh, was from Webster Groves, which is another community nearby. So what had happened is they knew the protest was going to happen. They brought in more police from the outlining areas to kind of staff up. One and, got shot in the face. One got shot in the shoulder. Yes. They're both critical, but should survive. Should and be survive. Ah, oh, just as. Yeah. Can't keep doing this. Okay. Wow. Uh, other news. The Iran Supreme Leader slams the GOP letter from the other day. There's no. 47 senators. That, he didn't like it? Yeah. He called it the ultimate degree of collapse in political ethics and the U.S. system's internal disintegration. Mm. So he characterized this letter from the, what was it, 47 senators, yeah, I believe it yeah. was. Um, well. According to Iran's news agency, Ayatollah Al-Khamenei, I believe that's how you say his name, noted that the GOP's insistence that any deal struck by President Obama could be null and void when he leaves office is a sign of America's tricks and deceits. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I don't know that they're the best source 
of <laughs> he also says constitutional. Of course, I am insight. worried because the other side, the United States, is known for uh, opacity, deceit, and backstabbing. Oh, totally. Yeah. So, <laughs> by the way, James, that's what you were saying. You were calling me th- those three words yesterday as well. Yeah, well, I thought that all Americans are known for that, and I was like, you especially yeah. are known for... Opacity, deceit, uh, and... Backstabbing. Backstabbing, yeah. I did find it interesting, the news reports yesterday talking about everyone's outrage that the Republicans did this, but when President Bush was in office, the Democrats went and talked to the leader of Syria Oh uh, yeah, to kind of open up communication that the, 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 the administration was trying to isolate Syria... And the Democrats went over. It was Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi went over and sat down with Bashar al-Assad, his yeah. name is, sat down with him and tried to open up negotiations but against that, the no, president's but, Terry, wishes. that's different. That it's was exactly different. the same. No, that, see, that was different because that was different because those were different times. Right. It was a few see, years ago. This is every one of these stories go back to the same thing. We just can't get along. And we could. We just aren't. We just need a national impetus, something to bring us all back together. And we also seem to want to work with the leaders of Iran more than the other party. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's kind of an interesting To the thing people we despise, we let's go there. Let's go there. Instead of just working with each other. An archaeologist in the Bavarian city of Regensburg. Hmm. Ronald Regensburg? No, I, I think it's Regensburg. Okay. They have, and this is in Germany, have found that uh, the remains of a pretzel. Ooh. As well as a roll and a croissant. That date back to the 18th century. Well, now look, I've watched a lot of CSI. I've never heard of remains Uh uh, being associated with pastries or really any carbohydrate. It says the archaeologist explained that the baked treats were only preserved for centuries because they had been burned when they were made. Uh. The researcher believed the the baker discarded them because they were burned, and he's not going to use them. Nobody's going to eat a burnt pretzel. So we have a pretzel, a roll, and a croissant from the 18th century. Okay, let's just say. I mean, that sounds like a bad joke. But which one would you eat? I'd go with the croissant. You can't go wrong with croissant. It's burnt, though. Hey, they're all burnt. And it's been in the dirt. Oh, well. Yeah, I think that guy's probably the the worst baker of all time. That he baked something so poorly that it stuck around <laughs> until 2015. The hardened crust <laughs> from the the burnt edges, the carbonized crystal crust, mummified and mm. preserved. That is that's that's pretty mm, bad. Pretzels. Hey, we got to do one more story because today we're talking about the economy. Do you feel like you have a clue about what's going on in the U.S. economy? You hear all of these reports. Like you hear the jobs, you know, jobs markets up. We also hear the middle class is shrinking. We hear, you know, this battle between who actually creates jobs in this world, the government or the market and the corporations. Here's here's one thing we might end up having to do if the economy doesn't improve. Right. In Indonesia, a woman was selling her house. And um, in order to kind of up the ante a little bit. And make sure she could sell the house. She's put the house on the market with a pond. So you get a house and a pond and a backyard, the trifecta. And then the cherry on top, you get a wife. So I'm thinking, James, if it doesn't work out with you and McConkey, what's her name? Melancola. Melancola Fitch. Yep. If it doesn't work out with you and Melancolovich, then you go to Indonesia, you pick up a house. It's only $76,000. But you get a house, a pond, a backyard, 
and a wife, a 40-year-old wife named Wina Leah. And you, you don't have to have the wife. She's you, optional? Yeah. Okay. She's optional. The pond and the yard have to go with the house. But if you don't want the wife, and she's lovely and she's smart, obviously, she's trying so, to close the deal. So the wife is kind of like the washer and dryer. If you like, they'll well, leave yeah, it, but, but, but be if you don't want it, we'll... Because <laughs> we're going to start getting... No, wives are not like washers and dryers. More but of in a refrigerator? Indonesia, with, in, uh, is it an appliance type situation? No, okay. it's kind of just... It's it's a ben- It's an option. Okay. It's an upsell. <laughs> so they're going to maybe put new tile in the bathroom or a wife. <laughs> I The wife's just part of it. But he said ever since yesterday morning, there are continuous calls. I don't count how many, but there are dozens, maybe even hundreds. So dozens to hundreds seems different. But uh, but if someone wants the house, they can have it, and they don't have to have the single mother, the wife. They don't have to. Is this against her will, or is no, she— Oh, no, she's all for it. Oh, okay. That's how she's going to get the most out of her house. Anyway, enterprising, folks, enterprising. See, that's what's wrong with America. We don't bundle. We don't bundle our house sales with an entire family— <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Dr. Christian Vom Lem is going to join us here from Brigham Young University. He's an economist, uh, Princeton trained, my friends, and he is going to walk us through the economy. What's really going on? Uh, are, is, is it as bad as it sounds, or are we doing a lot better? We're going to talk about it up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, every day as we turn on the news, we hear uh, more and more reports about the economy. It's up. It's down. We're in debt. We're flourishing. We have jobs. We don't have jobs. Some jobs are being reported. Some aren't being reported. Anyway, what does it all mean? And uh, to me, it's just more confusion. So I wanted to bring in an expert that could walk all of us through what's really going on just at a basic level, so as you start to hear these uh, these numbers, they make more sense to you. You remember yesterday we talked about the stock market, our mutual funds. Today we're doing the economy and just trying to give you a leg up so you can better understand at least what's being said. We're bringing in today Christian Vom Lem, and he is an assistant professor of economics at Brigham Young University. He received his uh, bachelor's or his BS uh, in economics from Brigham Young University also uh, has a Ph.D. in economics from Princeton and a master's from Princeton. His primary research areas are macroeconomics and labor economics. So we'll be able to ask him a lot about, I guess, what's going on in the labor market. But again, Christian, thanks for being here. Uh, No problem. Happy to be here. It really, you know, what I find out, the more I've been doing my show here, is you don't know who to believe anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? Everybody's got an angle, and everybody needs to look... Like they're producing results. So uh, and again, it depends where you get your news, because on the we have a lot of media sources, too, that don't necessarily, you know, make it clearer. And we just keep dropping terms, debt, um, deficit, um, spending, uh, GDP, all of these terms that may not make sense to a lot of people. So. First things first, uh, we went through, uh, I guess, a recession. Is that what we call it? Yeah, that's what we call it. And 
it hit a lot of people. I mean, I think it pretty much hit everyone some way, whether yeah. they felt it economically or just saw it uh, in their lives or their families. How are we doing from where we were maybe five, seven years ago? Are we are we getting back in the game? So we're definitely on the recovery track right now. Yeah. Um, you know, it definitely looks like we still have room to grow and still have places to go. We haven't reached the highs of maybe the uh, the early '90s, mid '90s right. there. Uh, but in terms of say employment growth and growth in the number of people employed, uh, 2014 was our best year since 1999. Was so, it really? So, so we're getting back on track. There's still a lot of signs of you know work to do, but but we're in a good direction and we're starting to pick up speed. In fact, didn't just the last report wasn't it like down to it, the unemployment rate was down to 5.5 percent is what the White House is reporting. Is that yep. right? Yeah, no, that's yeah. Now some people are like right. Because isn't that only reporting a certain number of unemployed? Yeah. So, so this is a, a nuance that's often missed is that to be unemployed, you have to not only not have a job, but you actually have to be actively seeking a job okay. and ready to start within a few weeks. Yeah. So if you're someone who lost your job in this crisis and got discouraged because you applied for a lot of jobs, nothing worked out, you began to think maybe I can't find work, you give up, you're not counted as unemployed. You just right. leave the labor force. And so that just people getting discouraged and leaving can push down oh, the unemployment rate. So that, that's something yeah. to watch out for. With so that we number. say 5.5% are unemployed. That is probably 5.5% of those are actively out looking for jobs yep. and, and, and ready to start within a couple of weeks. Yeah. So those, yeah, that fraction of the people who are looking and who have jobs, uh, that's 5.5%. Well, and it seems like you would be looking, um, I mean, but eventually you're going to get unemployment. So d- do we know how many people are on unemployment? Oh, yeah. So we have data on the number of claims that people file for unemployment, and we can track that uh, and see that. seems like that would be a really good indicator for how many are unemployed or how many are we paying for. Well, in principle, to qualify for unemployment insurance, you have to be searching still. So so the people who are getting uh, UI benefits, unemployment insurance benefits, they're still looking if they're getting those benefits. At least we we are supposed to be. Allegedly is the word we use a lot on this (laughs) show. Is it – so it really could then be a combination of the unemployment uh, that are getting unemployment benefits and that 5.5%. So that would that would grow it. What, what would you guess? What's your gut about what percentage of the country is unemployed and, and would want to work, but some are just disheartened. Some have given up. Maybe some have passed their prime, they feel, and they, it's harder to get a job in a certain age group or... Sure. So there's another measure of unemployment, which we look at, which includes people who are discouraged or underemployed, people yeah. who are forced into part-time work, but it's not a really good situation for them. I think that number is up closer to, to 10%. Is it? Um, that number is always going to be higher than yeah. the official unemployment rate. And it's true that that number has been much more slow to decline. Now, it's been declining lately. It's looking good, but we're nowhere looking as good as that 5.5 unemployment right. rate would tell us. We're really doing better, but but not quite that healthy. What, what year did we say? that the economy tanked? Um, so in terms, I would say probably between 2007, 2009. I mean, 2008, 2009 was some of the worst of it. What? So what was the unemployment rate then? Uh, so we peaked at uh, the official one we measure in the, the data. That got up to near to 10%. That's amazing. So, so that, yeah, that, that's, that was the worst it got. That was the worst what it was got. The, what was the employment rate when we were kind of in the heydays, maybe 2000? 2000, 2000. 
Yeah, uh, two, well, so 2000, there was another downturn was, uh, right. in 2000. So but 99, if, I guess the if, Clinton. If we're looking before, yeah, yeah kind of Clinton years, uh, I'm with the employment rates probably closer to what we're seeing right now, really? uh, 5 Six percent, yeah. maybe as low as four in places, uh, depending on the fluctuations. How do you, as an economist and, and a, an economist at a university, um, what numbers do you trust? I mean, I mean, because it just seems like if a lot of this, some of this, is politicking, not just from President Obama, but every president is playing with the numbers, sure. right? You got to, and especially. So, what numbers do you trust? So, for me, I think. I would look to the official uh, reports from the government agencies, yeah. but I think it's not even so much a number of uh, do I believe these numbers so much as what are these numbers actually measuring yeah, and they... do they mean what people claim they mean. Okay. And I think that's where a lot of the spin comes in is the number is probably right, but maybe you're putting a spin on it saying this means something far different than in reality yeah. and it's the spin. So I think the better you know how these are measured and where they come from, you're able to cut through the spin a lot mm-hmm. more and see what's really going on. Well, and it, I mean it feels different. The economy – and that's subjective to me, but it it just seems like people are spending money. It seems like stuff's happening. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing across the board, I mean, not just employment, but we're seeing, you know, consumer spending is rising. People are appearing to be less scared and having – we're seeing less of a jump in saving. People mm-hmm. are beginning to spend again. So there's a number of indicators that we're getting back to that kind of pace where we want to be right. in the past. Is there a um, – one of the things that it seems like we hear a lot about is – China. We know that we borrowed, I guess, a lot of money from China as well. But China, China's economy is really struggling right now. Well, China's economy is slowing down. Is that what's uh, happening? So, so they were growing at amazing uh, rates of growth for a long time, and they're still growing yeah. at an amazing growth rate. It's just not as fast as before, and not as fast as we thought. So it's okay. a little slower. So I think uh, their thinking estimates are now down in the seven percent range. Their growth is only seven percent. Uh, well, is what there is seven percent a year, but that's you know, pretty good. That, that's pretty good. That that's quite. <laughs> I mean, a bit. We're, we're struggling. For what to grow two per two and a half percent? Sure, exactly. So, so in some sense, yeah, China's still growing very fast, but. People are worried if this slowing growth, is there something looming? Is there something we should be worried about? Uh, but but in terms of growth, they're still much faster than we are right now. Um, are we – I had a son ask me about our debt. Yeah. Tri- how, what is it? 18 trillion, whatever the number <laughs> it's a is. a scary number. Yeah, and he, he said it and I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to have to ask our expert. Dad, are we ever going to get out of this debt? Mm. So, so government debt is is certainly a controversial topic for many, and, and it can be confusing because certainly you hear numbers like you know trillions of dollars. That's that's yeah, scary. That's, that's right. You know, that's more than you or I could pay off if we had to. Right. So, so I mean, so the question is, will we ever get out of it? And yes, I mean, you look at the best way to I think measure debt in a consistent way is to look at the ratio of debt to our GDP. Yeah. And so just GDP for clarity, and that's the total income, gross domestic, gross domestic product, product. So all the monies earned. Yep. You can either measure it as all the income, all the money is earned in a country in a given period of time, or the total amount of expenditures okay. in a country in a given. So if you measure, if you use that and you look at the ratio of how much debt do we have compared to that, you could think of if well, we, yeah. yeah, it's like your house, right? So I can buy a whatever $100,000 house if I'm making 30 grand, 40 grand. Yeah. So so if you if you look at the debt ratio to our GDP, right now it's about 70%. That's 70% if you exclude all the debt the government owes to itself. There's a lot of debt the government we owes owe itself, ourselves. which yeah. is kind of confusing. So, yeah. so 70%. Um, that's not an all-time high in the United States. Oh, really? It was above 100% in World War II. Wow. Uh, so – so first of all, we can take comfort. Hey, that, okay, we're not that bad. And worse, <laughs> yeah. and we got better from that. 
but, but the big way to get out of, you know, of worrying about, stop worrying about the debt is just to see the economy grow. Um, I mean, you know, if you look back, I was looking at the numbers this morning, uh, 1980, uh, GDP was one-fifth of what it is today. Hmm. It's grown five times in the last 35 years. So those are good signs. If we grow at that pace, yeah, we owe a lot of money right now, but Mm -hmm. it's going to become comparatively smaller as the economy grows bigger and bigger, as long as we don't keep borrowing more More money at an unsustainable pace. And have we pretty much stopped borrowing? So if you look, so the deficit, so we could think about the debt is the total amount I owe, but the deficit is how much on a day-to-day am I spending more than I get in terms of income and taxes. So the deficit it has returned to what would call normal levels. Okay. Uh, so that's the deficit on on average a year is close to about between five percent of GDP and maybe a surplus of five percent. We're back to a two percent deficit. Okay. Um, whereas in the crisis, it ran up to ten percent. So two percent. So we are spending. Two percent more than we bring in. Well, so so GDP isn't what we necessarily bring, bring in, in right? right? So I mean, there's right. there's tax revenue, right. which is proportional to GDP. For Do the we most spend part. what we bring in? Do uh, we spend more than we bring in? The, the you know we call it a deficit for a reason, yeah. right? We're generally spending more. Uh, more than we're bringing in. Okay, if we got to talk about that, we got to take a break, but. See, now, again, I'm not an economist, Christian, but that's messed up. Because <laughs> if I do that at my house, I'm in trouble. Sure. Well, and, you know, and certainly one of the challenges for this is, you know, your house isn't the government. And the government and has no, a few things that I don't can do print that my own can. money. <laughs> I won't even make a joke about printing my own money. I'll have people here. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're talking with Christian Von Len here from Brigham Young University. Um, he is a professor, assistant professor of economics. Uh, and really, he's making it simple. This is easier than I thought, Christian. Well, the, good. The economy's not that hard. Come on. You don't have to go to Princeton. You just got to listen to somebody that did. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back and continue discussing the economy when we come back right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In the house, Dr. Christian Vom Len. He is a an assistant professor of economics here at Brigham Young University. He's basically walking us through the economy. Every time you listen to the news, one of the top stories will be economic news, economic information about the country, whether it's jobs reports. Uh, basically, you know, if you've ever heard him bring up Social Security, the fears of Social Security. Um, and this and our aging you know population, all of that taxation, any of those issues we 're really talking about the economy, so we wanted to bring christian in he 's a professor here at b y u also has a phd in economics from Princeton University and a master's as well and um we 're just picking his brain you know he's he actually you know it 's weird i 'm finding out is he talks like a normal guy he 's not even like like I thought, they they said, "Oh, we're bringing on an economist," and I'm like, "Oh boy, <laughs> that's going to get hard." But Christian, you're all, you're like normal. Well, apparently, we have work to do on our reputation. Then, <laughs> actually, you don't. Um, but you're also an expert in, in kind of the labor field as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we, we've we basically said the economy it's doing well, doing better. Yeah. It's coming back. Hmm. Um. 
is it is it are we are we the one of the leaders i mean are, are we economically doing better than most did we come out of this recession better i mean i know greece has taken a beating yeah certainly greece is They're on uh, the ropes. Is really struggling right now yeah um, yeah, I mean, definitely right now our position uh, relative to the rest of the world is, is actually quite strong. I mean, I wouldn't say on an objective metric that we're really strong, yeah. but relative to others, we're doing pretty good. So, so the euro area is really struggling. Europe's still having a lot of struggles. Japan has been struggling. Uh, Have they? It's yeah. interesting because it's so because we keep hearing news that Japan's on the rise, aren't they? I thought they were doing – maybe it's just recent news. Some, one It's probably one indicator they did well in. Sure. I mean, I mean, Japan is certainly a large economy and they, they contribute a lot to the global economy. But they've had some lingering issues for, for a few decades and they're, they're facing some tr- struggles really getting their economy into high gear of kind of the golden, golden years there yeah. for them. And, and that, that's kind of looming over them. How do we get our economy really back on track? And they've had some missteps. And, and so, so, yeah, the U.S. has come out very strong. Even in the crisis, you might say some of these younger developing countries like Brazil or, or China surpassed us mm-hmm. in terms of how they were doing. But even they have slowed down some. So our, our position is quite strong at the moment. So if, if you had to give us an economic health grade, <laughs> uh, A is like, you know, totally fit, perfect. And F is we're flabby. We've got, you know, heart Heart, uh, 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 what's it called? Um, we got heart issues. We're, we're 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 struggling. Sure, that's an F. Where where would you put us? Oh, I'd put us probably. I'd say we're passing. Okay, we're, we're passing. We're passing grade. But but you know maybe we're still at like C plus B minus okay. range. You know maybe yeah. creeping into B territory. But there's a sense of like we're going we're moving in the right yeah. direction. But we still how close to the F did we get? Oh, pretty darn close. I mean, I mean, at the, I mean, most people, some people have been tempted to call this recent crisis the Great Depression 2.0. Okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of you know major economic disaster, this is probably the second biggest in our recent collective memory. There've been ones way in our distant memory that were bad, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, this probably takes second place to the the Great Depression in the last century. Did the stimulus plans that uh, that were put in place did they work then? Could we give credit? To yeah. the response of our leaders, because one of the things we try to do on the show is talk about leadership. Did the response of our leaders kind of take a? I mean, help us through that. Yes. So, so I think it's important to think. Of, there's two different branches of policy yeah. that we conduct. So we have people managing the supply of money and the economy and the banks, and and that you hear a lot about the Federal Reserve. They yeah. do that, and then you have this stimulus side where Congress gets together and passes spending Throws down a or trillion tax dollars. Okay. Law. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think if we distinguish, I think most people feel like the money side we did a really good job. We're still making sure that the fixes we applied in the yeah. recession won't come back to haunt us. Right. But we did a pretty good job there. People feel like that if we had done much worse. Then we might have actually had Great Depression. Okay, yeah. So the the belief is that we prevented a second Great Depression through those policies. The stimulus side and the spending, it's it's just harder to tell. I mean, there were a lot of big promises made Mm -hmm. um, when those bills were passed that would see rapid declines in unemployment, rapid bounce backs in in GDP. We didn't see those promises come through, but it's hard to know what would have happened if we didn't. It would have been far worse. So there's a lot of debate about that still. I think on average, most people think it did some good, um, but we're still debating how much and was it worth the cost. Well, and I guess that's interesting because also it's not like it was one thing. There's, it could be one bill for a trillion dollars and half of it was a bunch of hooey. 
that, and, that and, wasn't helpful and other another half of it may have been helpful, right? And, and I think you'll find most people will agree that the stimulus could have been better targeted. You okay. could have done a better job at trying to weed out potential pet projects yeah. and, and you know, just really focus on what are the best places to invest our money to try and help the economy get on track. And it's always subjective as to what is best. But, but it's also really it's it's kind of we should all probably breathe a sigh of relief that we dodged a major bullet. Sure. It's still a pretty bad bullet. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah. not yeah. Yeah, major, we took a yeah. bullet. Yeah. We dodged fifty bullets. We <laughs> took fifty, but we dodged fifty. <laughs> yeah, there um, you go. Is it uh so so the economy's, you know, B C ish, C plus trending toward B or B minus trending up. That's good. That's a great sounds sentence. better than Again, that. that's just my language. I need it simplified like that. I'm not that smart. Um Talk about because uh, it seems like what we what would some would argue the fastest way to get this really back is just raise some taxes, and then others would say, but the minute you raise the taxes, you're taking money away that is probably propping up some of this country. Sure. So is so and and, and you know then there's the whole you know the Bush tax cuts and Republicans are always wanting less and Democrats are always wanting more. Talk about taxes in relation to where we are maybe in our in our economy. Where do we fit as far as being a taxed populace and what's the upside and the downside of just injecting more revenue into the government? Yeah. So, so the natural comparison here is us versus Europe. And compared to Europe, our taxes are very low. Mm. Um, our social programs are also much less generous. Yeah. There's kind of this trade-off. We tax less, we have less income, so we can pay for less. Right. Um, you know, I, I think, think most people think that if you cut taxes, that is going to help the economy grow. Raising them will slow it down. But you also have to pay attention to if I'm spending a bunch of money, you know, where am I going to pay for that? Do I just pay for that through the economy growing? Right. Do I pay for it by raising taxes to pay off, you know, Debt a, a debts? Or, yeah. and, you know, and and so so I think that a lot of the contention is about you know what's the right trade off between spending and taxes, mm-hmm. uh, and both sides have you know issues with the, you know some want to raise and yeah. push down taxes, want to spend more. I mean, right. if we, it's true if we were to raise taxes, we could afford more generous welfare programs, social programs, uh, better unemployment insurance to help people in crises mm-hmm. like the one we just went through. Um, yeah, it, it's it's kind of it's hard because there's there's the theories and there's probably it's really got to be frustrating for you because there's kind of the economic theories yeah then there's kind of economic realities and then there's also <laughs> political realities right yeah. so i mean economically if we could raise taxes bring money in and that money specifically went to paying down debt that might be interesting but we also i don't i mean then everyone's like well yeah but do you trust a politician to just Use the money right, so th- so then it's like then it's it gets more complicated. So as an academic, when you sit back and look at the economy, what ha- what are you what are you thinking? Uh, I mean, I'm thinking in in many cases. My personal opinion is that we should be very measured in how the government gets involved. Right? I yeah. mean, I mean, I I think that historically, if we want to talk about reducing our debt, the best way to do that is just to grow a lot faster, so the debt looks small by comparison, and it's very manageable. Right. Um, and I think a lot of growth in many ways, it's just best, okay, the government should generally say, okay, let's let people spend their money the way they think is best. Let's, you know, let them run their businesses. Obviously, there are places where there's imperfections in markets and the government should intervene. There should be help potentially for some people who are struggling, disabilities, various challenges like that. Um, but I, I think there's a 
many people would argue that uh, the government, the more they get involved, the more complicated it gets. Yeah. So as an academic, you want to see the best thing happen, but you always fear the government getting involved <laughs> is, is a you know, Pandora's box. You That's don't know right. what you're oh, going to no, get. Totally. And even, even, if it, even if their intention is well you know, intended, it doesn't mean it's going to be well delivered. Yeah. yeah. And um, I guess one of the things that uh, you hear a lot in some of the uh, – the battles between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and, and I think uh, Mitt Romney once said, you know, businesses make uh, jobs, not yeah. governments. And then a bunch of others came back. I think even Hillary Clinton just said it uh, fairly recently. Well, government is a, is, is a key source. True. My belief is they're both right. You need governments yeah. to run businesses or, I mean, just go to places where there's no stable government. Yeah. And you probably don't see a thriving business world. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but when you think about it, because you're a labor expert, um, and, and you can almost – I'm sure you could even see labor law and labor – I mean, the government could impede on labor. Mm-hmm. And so – and businesses could impede on and, and take advantage of the people. Yeah. So, so wh- where where are you in that battle, and 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 what? How do you see the relationship between government and business? What what's the ideal, and what's the real? Yeah, I mean, I think it really just depends on how competitive you think the the workplace is. How fair is it? Are businesses really paying workers what they're worth, or do owners of businesses? You know, say, well, I own the business, so I'm going to pay you less than you deserve because right. I have power here. It's hard for you to find a job. I'm going to treat you, quote, unfairly. Yeah. And, and I think people say, well, if they're doing that, the government should try and do something to level the playing field. Um, I think that certainly exists to some extent in places. Um, I think one of the big questions here, though, is not so much how fair is the marketplace, but but how good are our workers at having the skills that are needed? So, I mean, mm. there was I read in the Wall Street Journal the other day, the if you, they survey small businesses to ask what fraction of them are having a hard time finding new employees because of a skills gap, that the yeah. skills they need versus the applicants is a them. gap. That's an all-time high since 2006. Really? So, so there's a sense at the business level that we can't find the people we want. Now, I mean, maybe that's blowing smoke. I mean, who knows? But, but it does seem like there's this gap of we have – a changing types of technology in the world, yeah. changing patterns of trade. The jobs we want performed require certain skills, and it's becoming, at times right now, yeah. harder to find some of those skills uh, the way we'd like. And that puts it at a premium, though. So if you bring those skills in, you're going to be paid at a higher level because there's uh, there's an absence of those skills. People need them. Yeah. And it's, so one of the things I study a lot is is how much is technology replacing workers and what, uh-huh. what is that doing to our economy? And people often ask me, well, well, what should I do? I'm worried that technology is going to steal my job. And the answer is, well, be really good at what you do. That's right. If you're really skilled, even if it's something maybe a computer can do, mm-hmm. in most cases, we're still going to keep you around because you're so good. Yeah. And, and I think that skill and developing the best you can be is a great way to, to ensure yourself against, uh, against job. Yeah. Loss. There's a great quote that says, um, superior performance fosters independence of action. Mm. So top performers have freedom yeah. that, you know, mediocre performers don't have. Because <laughs> when, you, when you really can pull a result and show the results, you can pretty much do more what you want. Yeah. Sadly, and I guess positively, because then it's more up to you. And I guess this kind of gets into the argument, though, about – the middle class, because if the businesses are all thriving, they're all taking really big dividend. I mean, there's a lot of money being made right now in in businesses. A lot of money is even going back 
into businesses, and a lot of them it seems like are holding on to a lot of money. I yeah. don't know if that's the case, but is it – so then they're saying you know, the top 1% just keeps getting stronger and the, the middle class is shrinking and the poor are getting bigger. So mm-hmm. is there such thing as – is the middle class shrinking? Well, I think the question is what is the middle class? I think if we yeah. ask you know, maybe 75% of the public, yeah, I'm middle class, but 75% is an awful big it's chunk big to just middle be, class, be middle right. class. and. So, so what is middle class, I think, is hard to define. I think a lot of people are still feeling the after effects of the recession, who, and they classify themselves as middle class. They yeah. feel like we're being pressured. We feel like you know, that, yeah, they're that digging upper out 1%. Of debt they may have accrued. Yeah. yeah. The 1% seems to have it really grand. I mean, the, the actual uh, humor of it is the 1% was hit pretty bad in the recession, too, because they had a lot of wealth tied yeah. up in markets. Uh, of course, they still have a lot of wealth, they period. They have a lot of wealth. Come on, Christian. <laughs> um, but but yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of forces squeezing the middle class. You can talk about the decline of manufacturing industries, especially as we increase our trade patterns with other developing countries. Again, this technology question are certain jobs you know, being replaced by machines. Can computers get rid of certain types of middle class jobs? And, and I think it's easiest to think about the middle class in terms of, okay, what would we call middle class job? What jobs are paying? Yeah. What's an average of, middle class job? What's an average job? middle class job? Um, and a lot of those jobs we see – um, perform tasks that are very rule-based, very repetitive. Yeah. They follow specific procedures. And those are the ones you worry, oh, those are easy Robotic. to tell someone. <laughs> about, give it to a robot or you know, someone overseas, here's the set That's of rules, true, huh? just do it. Yeah. And, and so we worry about that class of jobs uh, vanishing and you know, what will happen to the people who've been doing these jobs. That's Can true. they make the transition to higher-skilled jobs or are they forced into more service, yeah. low-skilled labor? Hey, we have about 30 seconds. So what's the one thing, as an economist, that studies this day in and day out, what, what is the one thing that, that we should not necessarily worry about, but what, what would we focus on? The, what would be the best thing for the average American to focus on? I think the average American is just focusing on getting themselves as skilled as possible, getting themselves trained, find what they're good at, do it well. You know, then you'll have a lot of job security. Yeah. And, and, and finding that, that niche for yourself and being really good at it. That's going to protect you against fears of robots, taxes, debts. Right. You know, you're going to have a secure position. And so I think just focusing on putting yourself in the best position possible, even if the economy does tank, That's you cool. know, you're safe. And retool if you need to. I mean, if you're not in exactly. the place you need to be, you got – I mean, do it. Do it now so in three years you are where yeah. you need to be. Don't get complacent. Ah, Christian. Well done, my friend. Christian Vom Lem Len. Christian Vom Len here from Brigham Young University, assistant professor of economics And we appreciate you, my friend. Man, I even understood that. (laughs) Crazy. We're going to take a break. We'll come back, uh, do a quick uh, review of the headlines again. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Ah, the economy. We didn't even get into interest rates, world banks. I'd still like to know what's going on in Greece. I mean, we got That place has got to figure it out because we can't have a we can't have a drop in baklava. World baklava. Ugh. Hey, uh, folks. Um, so the economy. Uh, it's doing, it's doing better. It's not ideal, you know, B minus. 
But hey, James, he'll take a B minus any day. Love the B minus. <laughs> As they say, C's get degrees, so B minus gets. Gets the, the, the uh, you know, as the, we say that, the, the, yeah. gets the, the, the B minus gets the, um, almost gets the C. The C. It's, yeah. Yeah. Good times. Hey, did you hear this? Uh, speaking of our economy, apparently it's doing okay because now you can call, let's just say, because James was talking to me about this the other day. Let's say you, you want to go somewhere. You want to fly somewhere mm-hmm. on your jet. Okay. And uh, your dog is sick, and you got to take your dog. Let's say you're like Paris Hilton, and yeah. you've got a dog. You know, one of those little. I have a Chihuahua. Chihuahua. In a purse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to take your dog. You know that there is there's a new program out of Los Angeles, I guess, where you can take a cross country business trip with your dog, even if it's sick, because this this you rent the jet, but the jet comes with a vet. Whoa! That's its that's its its slogan. The jet vet. The jet vet. Wow! You know, which makes it so you know if you need a private jet and you need a ride along vet, they'll also give you a concierge pet service. So the jet vet and the pet, the trifecta. There, uh, it, I'm surprised that there's a market for this. That there's a big enough market yeah. that. They actually provide a service for this. Yeah. It's called Jet Set Vets. Really? Yeah. Jet Set Vets? Yeah. Well, I mean, you've heard of like the airplanes that'll like go transport a sick patient. Yeah. Yeah. To go get treatment somewhere. Well, what about the dogs? Jet Set Vet Pet. For pets. Mm-hmm. Wow. One uh, such jet took a f- cat to uh, from one from Colorado, basically, I guess. Oh, oh the radiation treatments, the cat had cancer and it needed treatments for with radiation in Colorado so they had to fly it from the New York apartment where the cat lives the cat has an apartment in New York and so the cat just called up a vet or the vet jet and the vet jet took him to Colorado to get their treatment isn't that amazing that's really cool I mean what's happening to us it used to be I mean I bet every farmer listening to the show right now is like oh boy I'll take care of that cat you know what I mean? I have a relative. I won't name names, but he's a brother-in-law. And, you know, when someone in the family has a sick animal, he can't believe we take him to a vet. You know, they're sick. Animals get sick. We just take them out on the farm. And, and I'm like, but these people love this animal. Well, I know, but you're not going to spend $1,000 on the animal. Well, some people are spending More thousands than that. Yeah. for the jet to get them the help. So anybody that argues the economy is not doing okay, obviously didn't know about the jet vet. Yeah, I feel like there's two drastic uh, differing uh, approaches to uh, health. Uh, one, you fly them out to get the medical help or just get the medical help close by. The other one is is uh, put them down. <laughs> well, and I think there's others. Let me give you one. You, one, you just get them a nice pillow. Okay, yeah. And then what I used to do with my dog is I just put peanut butter on the roof of his mouth. And he'd just lick it off for about an hour in heaven. And totally fix the problem. Well, got a broken leg disease. there, buddy? Yeah. Here's some peanut butter for you. Yeah. But on the roof, that didn't mouth. help. I think the biggest thing about the pets when they're sick, if you really want to help them, just don't put that plastic thing around their neck. 
That little bucket lid head. It, it almost it's like you're shaming the animal. Yeah. As it runs around with the lamp. I mean, I get it. Head. You don't want them to gnaw on their wound. But that's the what's that, the cone of shame. Yeah. It's putting insult to injury. You know, it's really cool actually how much people love their animals. And that's and I guess if we have the resources, that's and it is a huge industry. So you don't want to fault them, but man. Call the vet jet. Who are you gonna call? The vet jet. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't quite work. It does. Yeah, it's not like no. Ghostbusters. No, yeah. not at all. Not even close. Mm-mm. Anyway, the vet jet. We're out of here, my friends. The Matt Townsend Show. <laughs>